Merci, veuillez vous asseoir. Thank you. Please be seated. Bonjour. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Supreme Court of Canada, sitting in Quebec City this week. Good morning, and thank you for attending the Supreme Court of Canada sitting in Quebec City. We are very happy to be here today. This is just the second time the court has traveled outside Ottawa to hear cases elsewhere in Canada. The first time was in Winnipeg in 2019. The judges and staff of the court are delighted to find themselves in the most beautiful heritage city in North America. We have all been moved by the warm hospitality of your community. Hearing cases outside Ottawa is an initiative based on the principles of access to justice and open courts. This visit is an opportunity to let you know about our work, our activities, and our role in Canadian democracy. Nine of us traveled across the region to speak with high school students. And yesterday, hundreds of people joined us at the Musée de la Civilisation to ask us about the work we do and how we do it. Tomorrow, we will end our week by meeting with law students at l'Université Laval. La Cour suprême est la juridiction d'appel de dernier appel. The Supreme Court is the final court of appeal in Canada. It decides some of the most important and complex legal disputes in the country. In doing so, the court clarifies the law for all Canadians and ensures it's applied and enforced consistently and fairly all across the country. That's why it's important for people to understand how the court arrives at its decisions and why. After all, it's hard to put your trust in something you don't understand. That's why the Supreme Court is looking for opportunities to show people what we do and how we do it. And just as you're able to do that here today, you can attend court proceedings all across Quebec. As a matter of fact, all Canadian courts are open, impartial, and independent, and in a way that contributes to making our country a democratic superpower. I have one last thing I'd like to say before we begin the hearing today. On my own behalf and on behalf of my colleagues, I'd like to express our, our most sincere and warm thanks to the Chief Justice of Quebec, Manon Savard, as well as the Associate Chief Justice of the Superior Court of Quebec, Catherine Larosa, and the Chief Justice of the Court of Quebec, Lucie Rondeau. The hearings and our activities this week have been made possible by their enthusiastic and invaluable support. Now let's begin. In the matter of Janet Murray Hall versus the Attorney General of Quebec for the appellant, Janet Murray Hall, Maxime Guérin. Maître Christian Sarelis. And Christian Sarelis. <coughs> for intervener, Canadian Association for Progress and Justice, Maître Olga Repko. Matt Ryan, D.W. Delziel Casey. For the intervener, Cannabis Amnesty, Ren Bucalls. Anna Maria Enanayar. For the intervener, Cannabis Council of Canada and Quebec Cannabis Industry Association, Adam Goldenberg. And Holy Calmeyer. 
pour l'intimer procureur général du Québec. For the respondent, Attorney General of Quebec, Patricia Blair and Frédéric Perrault. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Hira Evans. And S. Zachary Green. For the intervener, Attorney General of Manitoba, Catherine Hart and Deborah Carlson. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Jonathan Penner and Robert Danny. For the intervener, Attorney General for Saskatchewan, Thomas Irvin Casey and Noah Vernikovsky. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, David N. Kamau and Nathaniel Gartke. For the intervener, Canadian Cancer Society, Mr. Robert Cunningham and Fadi Tobin. Maître Guérin. Mr. Guérin, you have the floor. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. We're here with a constitutional dispute, and before I get to the heart of the matter, which is constitutional law, I'd like to put this uh, in context with the enactment of the Cannabis Act, of the, both the federal and the provincial legislation. So I'll be referring to them in that way. We have a Court of Appeal decision here in the case at bar that uh, affects both the federal and provincial legislation. So I think it's important as part of this debate to focus on the federal legislation and talk about what it does as well as what the provincial legislation does. First off, the federal Act has three sources, provides for three sources of legal cannabis, and we have to understand it holistically in order to understand that legislation. And I would submit that there are three legal sources of cannabis medical cannabis with a prescription and with Health Canada's approval. Then there's authorized producers uh, who are licensed by Health Canada. And then finally, there's grow your own up to four plants for individuals. Those three sources are legal because we're talking about lawful or licit sources of cannabis. And I think it's important to emphasize that because the Court of Appeal seems to disregard that with all due respect. They seem to disregard those three sources of legal or decriminalized marijuana. And if you look at Section 7C of the Federal Act, they talk about the lawful sources of cannabis. Uh, excuse me for interrupting you, but you're talking about lawful sources of cannabis, but will you also talk about the definition of Ill illicit uh, cannabis in the federal legislation? Because provincial legislation can make uh, those sources illicit. Yes, I will get to that. So obviously there is provision for illicit cannabis in the federal legislation, body of legislation, that is criminal, produced by 
uh, organized crime and so on, that's, that's illicit. And if it's more than five plants, that would also be considered illicit. There's also cannabis that is off the outside of the commercial production network, and that would probably be organized crime again. One, that would also be illicit. So this comes back to the purpose of both the federal and the provincial legislation. Federally, the purpose of the act is found in the initial provisions, including Section 7, which I think is extremely important in the case at bar. In that provision, the, the, the provision sets out the basis for legalizing cannabis. And before I get go to the heart of that, we mustn't forget that the legalization of cannabis in Canada didn't start in 2018. It actually started in the late 90s and early 2000s with the with medical use of medical marijuana. So already cannabis was legal in Canada for some 20 years. It's been around, and Minister Pettipod Taylor, even in her speech in the House of Commons, talked about the existence of the medical regime. She talked about the need for harmony, harmonizing the recreational cannabis with the med medical regime for cannabis. So in these initial provisions of the federal legislation, there's uh, an objective of public health, and there's a goal of fighting organized crime. And, that's a, and there's an underlying objective, which is to reduce the impact of legalizing cannabis on the criminal justice system. So there was a goal to uh, lighten the load of the criminal justice system through legalization. So when you look at the federal purpose, and then you turn to the provincial legislation and look at its purposes, you can see that the purposes are very similar, very close in nature. There's an objective of public health uh, in the provincial legislation. There's also the purpose of protecting public health and uh, Another one that's underlying public health is protecting youth. The idea was to get cannabis out of the hands of young people, out of teenagers, uh, to put it beyond their... Well, don't forget, there's also the desire to control the market, to ensure that the market uh, is uh, structured and so on. That was one of the provincial objectives. Absolutely, and that's in the federal legislation too when it comes to production and uh, marketing uh, by Health Canada. So those are purposes that are present in both the federal and provincial legislation, and they, they seem to dovetail well together. The purposes are very much the same, but where there's a difference, and that brings us to the dispute of today, it's uh, when we're talking about homegrown cannabis. And, of course, Quebec has the right to regulate a number of, a whole host of topics. They can restrict the federal regime uh, because there is a double aspect uh, when it comes to this very big area of cannabis. And we mustn't forget that the federal legislation impacts a whole bunch of areas, criminal law, but also property and civil rights and, and so on. And we're fully aware of that. Where we have a problem is the drafting of the provincial legislation uh, versus the federal legislation. The feds wanted to decriminalize. Uh, and when you 
analyze the provincial and the federal intent, we really need to look at the whole statutory context, and not just the intrinsic evidence, but also the extrinsic evidence. We have to look at what Parliament intended. Well, I'm sure you're going to get around to this eventually, uh, Council, but we'd like to know whether there's a link between the federal jurisdiction when it comes to criminal law, in other words, the federal power to ban or prohibit The federal legislation seems to grant positive rights. Does all of this fall under the same uh, heading? Is the analysis the same uh, when it comes to Section 9127? Does the federal legisl legislation go beyond a conventional prohibition and actually create a positive right? Because it seems to me that's the crux of your argument. No, it's not necessarily the crux of our argument, but it is a good part of it. There is a distinction to be drawn, and we, we need to analyze this in more than one way. Uh, the Superior Court's decision really looked at the analysis of the pith and substance. And so the Court of Appeal pretty much uh, didn't get into the pith and substance that much. They, they, they didn't really think it through, if you will. In our view, it certainly seems to us that in pith and substance, the provincial legislation, the impugned provisions certainly seem to fall under the criminal uh, law head of power. And when you compare the drafting of the two versions, the provincial and the federal legislation, you see that there's a lot of similar similarities. And the provincial act is a blanket prohibition, and that's why we think it falls under criminal law jurisdiction. And we mustn't forget, too, that the province was attempting to undo what the federal government had done. Uh, and I know we shouldn't attach undue weight to what ministers and politicians said, but I think in this case we do need to look at that extrinsic evidence, uh, and we will see that the Quebec government was really looking to uh, offset or counteract the federal legislation. So Minister Pettipa Taylor, in this uh, context, what she said was basically that the provinces, but, well, the federal government rather, was saying that legalization was a way to allow people to grow for plants at home. And that was going to help fight the unlawful or illicit cannabis market, uh, i.e. organized crime. So in our view, this is really all about the pith and substance of the act. It's the federal exclusive jurisdiction over criminal law. Yes, but in analyzing the pith and substance, is it enough to say that the provincial prohibition of homegrown, is it enough to just stop there and say that's the pith and substance? Or do we have to go further and see whether those provisions are actually intimately connected with the rest of the bill, the rest of the, the act? Yes, absolutely. And given how clearly the bill is drafted and how similar the two acts are, obviously we could have just stopped there, but that's a bit, perhaps a bit 
short-sighted. And that's what the Court of Appeals said, too, that you have to look further. You have to look at the, the purpose of the provincial legislation and its overall goals. So that's where we can enter into the theory of, the, of double aspect. And there are issues that stem from that, and we will deal with that. In fact, we can move straight to that if you'd like. Yes, there is an incursion uh, or an encroachment on federal jurisdiction. Is it a serious incursion? Well, given that the jurisdiction in question is quite broad, there has to be a pretty strict analysis of that incursion into federal jurisdiction because it's an exclusive federal jurisdiction. So we need to do a very rigorous and whole, wholesome analysis of the issue. So this is not an absolute prohibition, let's say that. Well, the Court of Appeal looked at the uh, legislation, too, that uh, amends the SAQ legislation. And you criticized the Court of Appeal for putting too much emphasis on that extrinsic evidence. Uh, yes, Justice, we are critical of that reasoning. And I'd like to come back to my introduction in this debate. We said that there are three sources of legal cannabis. And the Court of Appeal really focused on the SQDC's monopoly, the government monopoly, on uh, distribution and marketing of cannabis. Well, that's really missing the point. The point of the federal legislation is to say that there are three sources of lawful supply of cannabis. And the Court of Appeal r really just said that if people grow their own, there's no real control over the quality. And yes, that's true. But many Canadians have been growing cannabis at home for millennia. Maybe I'm exaggerating there, but uh, there's not a lot of people who actually uh, run into trouble with their homegrown product. So if it's really a matter of quality of the product, well, we're critical of that reasoning. And the justification that the Court of Appeal used was the existence of a government monopoly. And if home growing was allowed, that would uh, run counter to the creation of a monopoly. But what we're, say what we're saying is you have to go back to the federal act and say there's not just one legal source, there's three legal sources, and homegrown is one of those lawful sources of cannabis. And ca homegrown cannabis, uh, under the federal legislation, is a lawful source. So that's the criterion. Yes, but your argument seems to presuppose that Parliament created a, a freestanding right. And I think this court in the Rothmans and the Reference Reassisted Human Reproduction Act, this court held that the criminal head of power cannot create a freestanding right. So if such a right does indeed exist, what head of power does it flow from? Yes, we recognize that you can't necessarily create a positive right by decriminalizing something. So that doesn't automatically create positive entitlements for the public. But in 7C of the Act, the federal government says it talks about licit production of cannabis. 
And if that indication weren't there, if that clear indication weren't there that we're talking about licit or lawful can, uh, production of cannabis, then I would agree with you. But here, with all due respect, given the existence of that provision and those licit sources, well, the situation's a bit different. And the licit production of cannabis is actually, it has a source in criminal law because the, the right to grow four plants at home has been decriminalized. So it it's, comes out of the criminal law, but I think we have to not just look at the fifth and substance of those provisions, but yes, it's our submission that the, the pith and substance of the provisions uh, is indeed uh, criminal in nature. Uh, but uh, if you look at the Court of Appeals decision, if you get into their very lengthy analysis and you look at what our politicians were talking about when they legalized this, and we're fortunate in this case because there's a lot of documentation in the parliamentary debates, and I think it's we can only conclude that there's a conflict between the federal and provincial uh, approaches to this, and sections 5 and 10 of the provincial legislation are really a blanket prohibition. I'd like to ask a question. The appeal court said in paragraph 60 that uh, the fines are from $250 to $750, and that is much different from the imprisonment sentence uh, that comes under the Federal Act. Now, do you think that the Federal Act can fall under criminal law jurisdiction, whereas the structure is uh, so different from other criminal law acts? I'm very pleased with this question, uh, Justice Martin, because it's very important with regard to the characterization of criminal law. And I'm going to answer with another question. On October 17, 2018, a Canadian got up in the morning and had the right to plant four plants with no penalty, with no criminal penalty, but then all of a sudden, if he lives in Quebec, he does. Yes, but is that, that is a right then that was conferred? Yes, under 7C. That's our opinion. Yes, because of the uh, gymnastics of 7C, but I'm not saying that it uh, applies to any case, just any case. It is very specific to the Cannabis Act under 7C and uh, considering the uh, lawful sources of Canada. And uh, to close on your question, uh, Justice Martin, there is the criminal law that doesn't apply for uh, some of the some Canadians, and it's not necessarily criminal law that applies, but is has it been decriminalized? Uh, so for us, uh, it comes under criminal law, and. Uh, for example, because of the penalties uh, that come with it and the purpose of the Federal Act, which is to uh, clear up the backlog in the justice system that has uh, to do with cannabis offenses. And uh, therefore, the purpose is that uh, these people should not uh, come before the court if they're uh, growing cannabis. And question from Justice Kazer. 
but the minister's statements that have been made don't change the Constitution. May I bring you back to your assessment of the pith and substance of the Quebec statute and the provisions therein? Perhaps uh, you could uh, specify what your argument is beyond your assertion uh, that there is a uh, blanket prohibition and that that uh, settles the issue. Don't you have to delve further into the argument to see what the objectives of the Quebec legislator are? I find that you're going rather quickly on the matter of pith and substance. It appears to me that the Quebec statute sets out two purposes, and prevention and reduction of uh, harm caused by cannabis, cannabis, and the health and safety of Quebecers, especially young people. And the creation of the Société Québécoise de Cannabis says that their, this restricted sale has a purpose that is to ensure the quality of the product sold and to ensure that uh, young people under 21 do not buy uncontrolled substances. This is a type of regulation and it's much more subtle, more nuanced than an a blanket assertion that there is a, a generalized prohibition that you are arguing, and I'm saying this with all due respect, uh, because we can disembody sections five and 10. Yes, I want to get into this because uh, this issue is very heavy, it's very lengthy, and uh, the assessment is shown by case law. And so in the case at bar, we can uh, draw a parallel between, between two purposes. If we look at uh, pith and substance, then there is a wording of the criminal law, and I'm taking it for granted. I'm arguing that, but we can't uh, stop at that. We have to go further. We have, we have to verify how it is enshrined in the law. So if we look at the pith and substance of sections 5 and 10, and we compare them to the purpose, the overall purpose, then we can realize that there is a purpose an aim to protect young people. And uh, I'm not challenging the choices of the legislator or the wisdom of uh, the existing laws. However, it is easy to forget in Quebec, uh, and the appeal, uh, Court of Appeal didn't say anything. In Quebec, we have a 20-year tradition of uh, homegrown cannabis, and, uh, the, and any home growth and any accidents with children, well, we haven't seen that at all. And so, all of a sudden, uh, when you're talking about home growing and drying the cannabis, well, that isn't mentioned either by the Court of Appeal. And uh, there was, but there is an expertise in this matter, and uh, there, for a, ch a child has to eat a whole lot of fresh cannabis before there is any uh, problem or before there are any health effects. So yes, we do want to protect uh, young people here in Quebec, and so does the federal statute. And uh, so that's why there are provisions on uh, possession of cannabis, cannabis various ages under 16 and so forth. But the Court of Appeal did not gain to account the fact that uh, 
home growing can uh, comply with these objectives of safety and protection. And that is what we see in the debates, is that uh, uh, there was disagreement with the federal objective. So the, pro the provinces can disagree with that, but uh, to actually frustrate the federal purpose uh, with this uh, blanket prohibition on growing, and that's with elected officials who represented the legislator, and uh, they reacted to the federal statute. The uh, Minister Charlebois said that uh, it is not, the decision was not up to Quebec. And that's fine. So yes, Quebec is trying to control access uh, to cannabis, uh, especially access by young people, but there, and there is also public health. I apologize, I, I'm having trouble following you. You're talking about the validity of the act and its pith and substance, and then you're going, you're talking about the frustration of purpose, which uh, to me is something, an analysis that should be conducted under, uh, with the regard to the operability of the federal act. So I want to know, is this valid? You, you could. Uh, say, well, okay, the Quebec law is valid, but it breaches or undermines the objectives of the Federal Act, federal act in such a way that uh, under the second component, for example, paramountcy, it's inoperative. And uh, the Court of Appeal did say that it uh, divided two things, and that's why I'm having trouble following you. I believe that you're arguing, your arguments are touching on both uh, aspects. Yes, exactly. That's uh, what I'm doing. We recognize that the Provincial Act has a valid object, a valid purpose, and it is valid overall. But however, and this is what we're saying overall, is that we look at the purpose and we look at federal paramountcy. If we go to that extreme, yes, there is a frustration of purpose. But yes, both uh, statutes have uh, valid uh, purposes in terms of uh, public health and safety. But is this a criminal law purpose with regard to the prohibition of uh, growing cannabis? We would say yes. That are that is our argument, and uh, we respectfully submit those arguments. So yes, the Court of Appeal has uh, separated things, but we don't think that it went for, for well, that it went far, far enough, and we think that its uh, arguments were twisted in that regard. Because uh, banning home growing does not uh, mean that cannabis is not consumed anyway. And considering 7C of the Federal Act, well, Yes, but can we say that there is a conflict? Is there a frustration of purpose when Section 2 of the Federal Act includes the definition of illicit and illicit cannabis? So it's clear that Parliament intended for certain types of cannabis that are otherwise lawful be made unlawful by provincial regulation. So is that a frustration of purpose? I don't think so. Sincerely, I would say yes for the very simple reason that when we analyze the federal statute as a whole, 
versus the provincial statute, there's a stigmatization of uh, cannabis. And I say that respectfully to, f with regard to the Quebec legislator. But in the provincial law, uh, it is trying to stigmatize the possession and growing and consumption of cannabis, whereas the uh, purpose of the federal act is much broader. Uh, the federal law tries to uh, clear up the backlog in the justice, justice system. And the federal law goes too far. It goes beyond the federal purpose, so the purpose of the federal law, which uh, has licit sources of cannabis uh, that can be grown at home. So if we look at both of those regimes, then we can see an aspect where the where moral values are undermined and that is what the Superior Court concluded in its analysis as well. And when we look at operability, if we look at the legislative debates, and I think they need to be taken into account because uh, they uh, do have a certain weight in uh, the case at bar. So uh, what uh, Minister Pitsipat Taylor said, she was Minister of Health at the, at the time, what she said was very clear, especially since uh, the Senate tried to uh, undermine this law. So if there hadn't been that background, well, then our argument would, wouldn't be as strong. But because of this background, because of this extrinsic uh, evidence, we can see that there was a very clear federal intent. And then the provincial comes along, and it has a very clear purpose, which is to frustrate the purpose of the Provincial Act. Uh, I apologize. But uh, perhaps we'll never agree on the purposes of the two laws. But do you think that the purpose of the Provincial Law is to frustrate the federal purpose? Because you're saying that uh, uh, the federal law is to um, stamp out sources of uh, illegal cannabis. And the provincial law simply is trying is seeking to control an illegal substance, and it is trying to protect the health of young people. How is that contradictory? The provincial law does not does not want to uh, bring this into criminal law. Yes, you're right, uh, Chief Justice. It's not to the provincial law does not seek to encroach on uh, criminal law jurisdiction. But the Quebec statute means that uh, people who want to uh, consume can cannabis often have to turn to the black market because there's this uh, government monopoly on uh, distribution and sale. So for products that uh, have more than 30% THC, the consumer has to turn to the black market because uh, the SQDC does not distribute those pro pro products. And that is a, source of, a legal source of cannabis, but Quebecers don't have access to it. And, uh, the, and yet, uh, if uh, people could grow cannabis at home, it would be, oh, they, that would uh, solve the problem. So I am arguing that it strengthens the black market because of this uh, stigmatizing aspect of uh, the provincial law. So we need to understand that cannabis uh, was, it was a criminal uh, uh, thing before to grow cannabis at home, and the federal law now permits for plants, but the provincial law says, well, we want to create a legal market, we're creating the SQDC, but to 
completely ban home growing of cannabis, whereas the federal law allows it, well, if that is done, then once again, there is uh, a, uh, there's no access to, to cannabis and uh, we're trying to uh, dislodge or displace the illegal market, but in fact, the opposite is occurring under the Quebec law because of the black market, because of the 30% of THC. So the objectives are undermined. Okay, you may think that the Quebec law is bad, but that's not the issue here today. We are here to judge the constitutionality of these provisions. So once again, in at least in my opinion, you're uh, you're uh, taking me away from uh, the arguments that I should be listening to as a judge. So I want to know if this is constitutionally valid. That's also, I would prefer uh, you, that you stick with trying to prove whether it's valid or not because I'm still having trouble following you. You're saying uh, the statute as a whole is valid? Yes. Well, but you're saying the specific provisions are not? Is that what I understand? If you look at uh, Western uh, Canadian Bank and General Motors, under that case law, uh, we're talking about uh, criminal law purpose, and we're convinced that this is a criminal law purpose. Uh, and if we go further in, in our analysis, and uh, we can say that there is a, uh, a punishment effect or a penalizing effect and so we're going from a criminal penalty to a, uh, an offense, to a violation. And uh, on, obviously there's a big difference between imprisonment and receiving a fine. And so obviously there are steps to go through before we get to imprisonment. But because of the, uh, this uh, blanket prohibition, uh, we believe that uh, it... Uh, moves into criminal law purpose. Now, if we had been uh, more stringent, uh, I'm looking at Canadian case law here, then, w uh, then we wouldn't have had a problem. But we argue uh, that uh, in a case such as spray tech, well, it's, it's an absolute prohibition of an activity which under the federal statute uh, should be considered so this argument that was uh, used by the trial judge was uh, rejected by the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal said, well, we're looking at the impugned provisions and the validid validity of this uh, law, so the law has to be read as a whole. So do you think the Court of Appeal erred in its analysis of the impugned provisions on, in this regard? because you have just said that uh, the law as a whole is good, but aren't you making the error that the Court of Appeal mentioned? That is, you're analyzing the uh, provisions in a silo, the provisions in question? Well, yes and no. Because yes, if we look at the Superior Court's arguments, yes, it would be we would be analyzing the f sections five and ten separately. But if we look at the overall statute, we have to remember that the federal statute, for example, in the case of the Law Society of British Columbia, that with beca because without the federal act, we would be in the criminal law area. 
the federal statu statute is, is uh, quite militant. Uh, so if uh, there is a conflict between the two laws, well, yes, there is an overall objective. In the, and, and so the provincial statute may appear valid, but the substance of the determination of the validity of those two uh, provisions, 5 and 10, if we look at the frustration of purpose, then we uh, fall into uh, the double aspect doctrine and, the fe and federal paramountcy, and we can see that there is a frustration of purpose between the um, between the two laws. So there's a provincial ban on home growing, but when I look at the federal act and its definition, uh, when it comes to the prohibition, they're talking about cannabis that's produced either that is prohibited by either federal or provincial legislation. So when I look at the definition of illicit cannabis in the federal act, and perhaps I'm mistaken here, but it seems to me that Parliament was anticipating that provinces could prohibit the protect production of cannabis. Am I mistaken? No, I would say you've, you've read that right. But on that point, what Quebec could have done is say that cannabis grown by people aged 18 to 21 is illicit. But with a blanket provision, they're completely frustrating the federal intent. So yes, a ban could be based on uh, the person's age, a ban on home growing and so on. That would have been consistent. Uh, but a blanket ban totally frustrates the federal intent. And in addition, it comes under a federal jurisdiction, and so those two provisions are basically invalid. Well, would it be right to think that even the federal act in attempting to take the production of cannabis out of criminal hands, would it be possible to say that the federal government wasn't paying heed to the public health purpose uh, are you saying that the federal act d makes no mention of or no doesn't take into consideration the health aspects of cannabis? Chief Justice, I love that question because yes, indeed, they're very s the, the federal and the provincial acts both have very similar objectives and, and they're not even contradictory. They're, they're consistent with one another when it comes to that with, on the purpose. Uh, for example, there are health warnings and all kinds of things like that that, that are based on health concerns. Uh, but that being the case, the fact remains that the Federal Act and the debates in Parliament show that the Federal purpose was to allow for licit production at home. Homegrown cannabis was to be considered a licit source. Uh, and I think the federal intent was for this to apply across the country, including in Quebec and Manitoba. But the Quebec Act is stricter, much stricter. Excuse me? Well, Quebec created 
illicit source that's even more available with the creation of uh, the Quebec Cannabis Corporation. So where is the frustration of the federal purpose? Well, with all due respect, I don't believe that the government monopoly created through the Quebec Cannabis Corporation uh, broadened access. Yes, it's illicit source, of course. It's one of the illicit sources that is consistent with the federal purpose, but it's my submission that it's not enough. If your goal is to protect public health and to decriminalize cannabis, I don't think it's enough or that it's justifiable to, under the, in the name of public health, to ban homegrown cannabis, especially when the federal intent to allow that was so clear. And when we do the analysis with the characterization and so on and the classification, when you look at the classification of the impugned provisions under the heads of power, uh, and if you look under General Motors, you have to look at uh, the was that was it absolutely necessary to impose a blanket prohibition on homegrown cannabis? And there were provincial ministers and and federal ministers, rather federal politicians. A lot of people spoke in this debate, and it's clear from those speeches that the federal intent was to allow for homegrown marijuana. It was a big part of that legislation and a big part of their intention. And the when you look at Law Society of British Columbia, that case, it's clear that you have to really delve into the intention of the legislature. And it's also clear, in our view, that Sections 5 and 10 of the Provincial Act are not entirely necessary to meet the purpose of the Provincial Act. Council, should we infer anything from the absence of the Attorney General of Canada from this debate? You talk about defending the purpose of the federal legislation, but the Attorney General of Canada is not even here to defend the federal jurisdiction. Can we draw any inferences from their absence? Justice, I would say no under the circumstances. The debates in Parliament were so clear. The Hansard debates are very complete and very clear. I don't want to get into a political debate here. That's not really what we're here for. But I think the federal intent is quite clear, crystal clear. And in a system of, based on federal cooperation, uh, I think uh, it was fair for the federal government to leave it, leave it to the provinces to hash this out. No, no, it's not a political position uh, we're talking about. Uh, the, the court, of course, should be careful uh, before striking legislation down in the absence of the Attorney General of Canada. That's my point here, really. Should we not be very careful? Uh, is there anything that we should draw from this situation? Well, the decisions of this course do provide some guidance. Yes, there are some inferences to be drawn, but I don't think those inferences are decisive. Uh, uh, they're not dispositive of the issue. 
I think we need to look at both the intrinsic and extrinsic evidence. There's been no change in government federally since this act was enacted, so I don't think we should infer any change in position. Well, it might be an indication. Maybe it's not determinative, maybe it's not dispositive, but I think we can draw uh, an inference because uh, normally the federal government would want to defend its own legislation, I would think. When it comes to the fact that Quebecers can buy cannabis through the SQDC, and your answer was not entirely because if you want t uh, higher than if you want higher than thirty percent THC, uh, uh, you have to go to the black market. But wasn't that part of the public health uh, purpose by not allowing uh, higher THC products? Yes, that could have been what's behind. Uh, that uh, on the uh, behind the SQDC's decision not to market high THC products, but what I'm saying is that it kind of ran ran counter to the objective when people are then forced to turn to the black market to get those products. Uh, the whole idea here was to create a single legal market uh, with multiple sources of licit production. So the government of Quebec uh, chose its means, but I, what I would say is that those means don't entirely meet the purpose, the public health purpose. They don't uh, cover all aspects, and in some, way, some ways it's actually contradictory. It runs counter to the purpose, uh, and so I think clearly in the federal legislation there was an openness to eventually having more and more products it all started with dried cannabis and um, oils, and now the market has broadened. The edibles are now allowed, and so on. So, there, of course, there was a public health purpose behind Quebec's choice of means, but they don't. They're not entirely consistent with the federal public health purpose. Uh, and when a ordinary person has to turn to the black market for certain products, that's going against the whole purpose of the federal legislation. And there was a directive issued by the Quebec public health authorities, but just because they might have said, made certain statements, does that mean that it meets the uh, federal public health purpose? No, I think we can't. That automatically conclude that just because the health authorities said one thing, that that's entirely true. I just have a hypothetical question for you. If the Provincial Act had allowed for the growth of, one, for people to grow one plant at home, what would be the case? Well, I wouldn't be here today. Quite frankly, the appellant's position would not be the same because there wouldn't be a blanket prohibition. So, of course, in that case, you could both enjoy the benefits of the federal act and the provincial act. But doesn't that undermine your argument? Because you said that the federal legislation allowed for four plants. It created a positive entitlement to grow four plants. So is it that it creates a positive entitlement or that it merely decriminalizes home growing? Well, first of all, it decriminalizes home growing. 
but it also allows for home growing and it allows for up to four plants unless the provinces adopt a more restrictive approach but both can both purposes can be sorry but i'm still having a hard time understanding what exactly your position is so let's talk about the operation of the quebec act the operational aspect the federal act decriminalizes but Parliament did not create a positive right to grow for plants at home for personal use. So my first question is, on an operational level, is there any conflict? Or, if there's no conflict, is your concern, are you really talking about the second branch of paramountcy, i.e. a conflict a conflict of purpose. Do you accept that there's no operational conflict and that Parliament did not grant a positive right to grow four plants for personal use at home? Well, my submission is that under Section 7C, given the dynamics of the Act, that positive entitlement for Canadians to grow plants at home was created by the Federal Act, not necessarily for plants, but just a right to grow your own, homegrown. Okay, so for you it's an operational conflict. Yes. And when it comes to the conflict of purpose, do you see a conflict of purpose there too? Yes, there's also a conflict of purpose. Yes, public health and protection of youth these are objectives that are being met and also taking production out of the hands of organized crime. But the federal government, the federal act, allows for more sources of licit production, including homegrown. And the province has imposed a blanket ban on that. So to answer Justice Cote's question, if the Provincial Act restricted home growing to just one plant, we would have no dispute. Well, if you have the right federally to grow four plants, and you're saying that if the Provincial Act allowed for only one, then you wouldn't even be here today. Well, I actually think with your argument you should be here either way, because if you're saying the Federal Act gives you the right to grow four, and the province says no, only one, you should still object. You should still challenge that. If, you, if the federal law actually creates a right to four plants, you should still have a problem with the province if they only allowed one. Yes, absolutely, I agree with you, but in the alternative. Uh, if, if you don't take that position, yes, we would still object to being limited to only one plant. But it's my position that 7C allows for four plants. And secondly, I would say the, the Provincial uh, Act can be more stringent, but it can't go so far as to impose a total ban. Is it a matter of federal jurisdiction to, to create a positive right to grow cannabis? 
or does that come under, does that actually come under the criminal head of power? Yes, absolutely. There was a prohibition on growing cannabis. It was criminal across the board way back when. So cannabis has criminal for almost 100 years, and then overnight it was decriminalized. First it started in the medical context, and uh, so the, the Court of Appeals taking issue with uh, quality, make, ensuring quality, I think that's, I, 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 I take issue with that personally. Uh, I don't think that's a, a valid argument, but, but criminal law is normally used to prohibit things, not to allow them. Yes, that's absolutely true. Criminal law does not create a positive right to grow. But you keep saying that. Well, sec Section 7C provides for illicit source of production, illicit source of cannabis. So the purpose of the Federal Act is to make cannabis lawful and illicit and available. But does that... Uh, does that give uh, a level of government uh, uh, jurisdiction to, to create something? Your answer is that, well, Parliament has that goal. But a goal cannot confer jurisdiction, cannot give Parliament jurisdiction to do something. It's the Constitution that gives them the power, not, not the desire or the intent or the purpose they might have. It can only come from the Constitution. Absolutely. I agree with you. And if you take the argument further, there's the double aspect uh, doctrine and there's per federal paramountcy. And, and I think if you look at, at those in terms of double aspect, yes, the province had the right to legislate, but they can't legislate in a way that runs counter to the federal jurisdiction. I have another question for you. Is it possible for an ordinary person to comply with both the Federal and the Provincial Act? Yes, absolutely, at the same time, yes. So following your reasoning and the answers you gave uh, Justice Rowe and Justice Brown, should we, if we were to accept your argument, we would have to put aside this court's decisions in Rothman's and assisted human reproduction, those cases that explain why federal jurisdiction is essentially prohibitive in nature. Because if we were to do that, that would be major. You're asking a lot of this court, and it would go far beyond cannabis. For example, when it comes to provincial jurisdiction, provincial powers, the provinces would have to be very wary of federal jurisdiction if uh, uh, it were if we were to find that a positive right had been created here it would certainly have a major impact on sections 91 and 92 of the constitution I, I agree with you justice it is uh, too strict and uh, drastic with regard to the federal act but i would argue that uh, this argument appears in relation to arguments about uh, legalization of cannabis, but 
there's more to it than that because uh, within the double as aspect, uh, the double aspect doctrine and the ans ancillary powers, we know that uh, uh, the provincial law can be more stringent. We are aware of that. And we don't think that everything should stop there in terms of uh, analysis. We need to also look at this analy analysis with regard to cooperative federalism. And if, if there, we didn't have uh, the Hansard, if we didn't have the background of the elected officials' debates, if we hadn't heard from the uh, federal and Quebec ministers, uh, because uh, which are somewhat there and they're somewhat frustrated by the intent of the federal legislator well then we wouldn't be uh, arguing in the same way today but in the case at bar we have all these arguments all this extrinsic evidence which uh, ha which means that there is a certain en encroachment and in fact there's a serious encroachment or intrusion on uh, the federal statute and uh, that uh, compels us to say that this comes under the criminal law positive. So even if there wasn't this uh, positive right to home growing of uh, uh, cannabis, if we argue that, then we're uh, still uh, more penalized under provincial uh, the uh, provincial act. So yes, a citizen can obey both laws, but the provincial statute goes too far, in our humble opinion. It's too restrictive with regard to Quebecers versus what the uh, provincial or the federal statute allows. Once again, Section 7C uh, decriminalizes uh, cannabis and allows citizens to grow it. So it is clear to us that there is a conflict between the two statutes, and therefore we turn to federal uh, paramountcy. And when we look at all that and we look at all this context and the background, then in our humble opinion, uh, once, away, once again, we argue that what we have before us is, uh, it comes under criminal law and it is a, a, uh, an overly, an exceedingly serious intrusion on uh, federal jurisdiction. So to sum up, this was our main argument, is that uh, if you look at all the background, well, it, we are uh, clear that uh, the intrusion goes too far. Question, would you accept the argument that, uh, that under the paramountcy doctrine, does the purpose have to be valid? valid? It, coming back to what Justice Brown said then, the purpose must be valid. So it's not just enough to say, well, uh, 7C, has uh, a purpose, an objective. Well, no, this objective has to be valid when applying uh, 9127. And here, it is not valid. For example, Rothman's, uh, as cited by the Court of Appeal, assisted uh, procreation cited by the Court of Appeal. So we don't have to worry about the analysis of paramountcy. Well, I would argue that yes, we do have to be concerned about that and we have to be concerned about everything that is comprehensive within the law, within the statute, and the Court of Appeal did so, but it was uh, based on the uh, wrong objectives because of, its, uh, because of the monopoly that is created. But the Federal Act uh, says that uh, 
uh, certain corporations cannot grow cannabis, and and uh, and it's uh, the federal law says that people do have the right to grow four plants, and that counts with it, and it's with regard to the home, the dwelling house, not the person, and so that. Uh, regulates this whole uh, context and it argues in favor of this interpretation of 7c which uh, makes it lawful, lawful cannabis because the federal law doesn't uh, just decriminalize it actually specifies what can be done in a dwelling house by adults and the number of plants and it can't be done by a corporation and don't do it when you're under 18 so it's very specific what the federal act lays out so we have to go beyond the wording in this argument and go and check uh, what has been legislated in the Federal Act, and I think it goes much further, and I would ar humbly argue that it goes much further than decriminalization. It's much more specific than that as to what is allowed. And uh, so in closing, and I don't think I need to sum up uh, the core of my arguments. We believe that it falls under criminal law, but uh, we go much further than that by saying that the Court of Appeal, the provincial law, has uh, intruded on federal jurisdiction, and we have proven that with our arguments, uh, and we've shown the extrins extrinsic uh, evidence. So we have the Hansard, there was the reaction at the provincial level, and uh, with this uh, blanket prohibition, well, that is something that is not acceptable. And uh, we would also ask you to uh, uh, grant us the expenses uh, with the exception, and that appears in our factum, uh, with the exception for the uh, request for the extension. Thank you very much. Uh, Olga Redko. Olga Redko. Can a province recriminalize something that Parliament has expressly decriminalized? There's no question here that in the Cannabis Act, Parliament has decriminalized the possession and cultivation in the domicile of four or fewer cannabis plants. It's done so by removing cannabis from the list of substances subject to a total ban in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, and then creating a tailored prohibition or tailored prohibitions in sections 8 and 12 of the Cannabis Act on possession and cultivation of more than four plants. But through sections 5 and 10 of Quebec's Cannabis Regulation Act, we say Quebec has effectively recriminalized these same activities. Well, the word effectively seems to be an important word here. It is. Because it is not the province that has, as you call it, recriminalized it. It is, it is, it is, it remains criminal by operation of the federal act, which includes within the definition and clearly contemplates within the definition provincial regulation. That's exactly right. So, of course, you're referring to the definition of illicit cannabis, right. which Madam Justice Cote read to you earlier. It's absolutely correct that because of the definition of illicit cannabis, when a province forbids certain forms of possession... Because of Parliament's definition of illicit cannabis. Certainly. But right. that is one of the legal effects that flows from a provincial prohibition. It's the creation of a regulatory prohibition in the, pro in the provincial law 
But at the same time, because of the definition of illicit cannabis, Parliament, parliament, crimi parliament criminalizes Absolutely. It, right? But that is an effect that flows from the provincial prohibition. So we say when you're looking at all of the effects of the provincial law, you have to take into account the effects that derive from the interaction of the provincial and the federal statutes. So, so the constitutionality of provincial regulation is dependent upon the uh, a, is dependent upon Parliament's exercise of discretion to contemplate within a definition the possibility of provincial regulation. So we say that the operability of Quebec's regulations or Quebec's prohibitions does depend on whether all of their effects are consistent with Parliament's purpose. And I, I recognize that, yes, Parliament has contemplated some degree of provincial prohibitions that result in the creation of criminal prohibitions. But at the same time, what we say is crucial is that in passing the Cannabis Act, Parliament also intended for at least some acts in relation to cannabis to no longer be subject to criminal prohibitions. If only Parliament had said that. Pardon? If only Parliament had made that clear in the statute. Well, the, the Court of Appeal did conclude that at the very least, Parliament's objective in only prohibiting the possession and cultivation of more than four plants was to reduce the burden related to cannabis in the criminal justice system. At the very least, that's one of the objectives that that tailored provision serves. It's not an effect of the federal law that you're talking about? Well, it's, it's an effect that flows from the interaction of the federal and provincial laws, and of course, since well, the what does that mean? Well, it means that when a province passes a prohibition, you have to look at every consequence of that prohibition, including how, it, how you know, the interaction of, of any laws that operate together simultaneously. You can't ignore that one of the impacts of the provincial prohibition is the creation of a federal criminal prohibition. That's something that exists, that's something that's part of the context, and we say that's something that the court has to take into account. Because if Parliament itself extracted certain activities from the realm of the criminal law to reduce the burden of the justice system, the reimposition of criminal consequences on those very same activities undermines a means that Parliament has chosen to achieve its objective. Except the reimposition is by the very same Parliament whose objectives you say are being frustrated. So their frustration is that the source of the frustration is Parliament's own law. Well, I, I think that, you know, to add a little bit of nuance here, I think that we have to reconcile Section 2 and the bans on illicit cannabis with the objective Parliament has of reducing the burden on the criminal justice system. Because by virtue of that objective, some activities in relation to cannabis, Parliament deemed that they should no longer be subject to crim criminal liability, and of course, decriminalization Except is where the province regulates it. Then Parliament said it can be subject to criminal liability again. I, I mean, this, this is sophistry. I don't, I don't agree with you, Justice Brown, because I think that where you can determine that a, a, a provision was tailored specifically by Parliament to exclude criminal liability for certain acts, there, in order to, to read Section 2 consistently with the tailoring, I think that it's, it's quite open to, to say that there is a problem when a province reimposes criminal liability on those very same acts. No. It won't the happen on The province is not reimposing criminal. I, I, we're going around in circles. I, I understand that you don't agree with, with our submissions, but that is our position, is that we have, to, we have to take into account the impact of both the provincial legislation and the interaction of the provincial and federal legislation. Now, in Maloney, this court's majority found that Parliament's aim of frustrating financial rehabilitation of a bankrupt, uh, excuse me, furthering financial rehabilitation was frustrated when a province adopted legislation that effectively undermined the means that Parliament chose to achieve its aims. So that's a case of frustration. And we say that when a province passes a law whose effect results in the recriminalization of activities that Parliament explicitly decided to decriminalize, 
that too is a frustration of Parliament's purpose. Thank you very Thank much. You. Ren Buckles. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Cannabis Amnesty intervenes in this appeal with a modest proposal. When evaluating the policy purpose of federal legislation, it may be appropriate to look beyond the specific legislative provisions at issue and to consider ancillary legislation as well. Why? Because the legislature sometimes pursues federal policy through more than one legislative act. And this is especially true where the legislature sets out to effect substantial changes to the law. We submit that the failure to consider ancillary legislation may lead the court to interpret federal purpose in an unduly narrow manner, an impoverished manner, distorting the frustration analysis required by this court's jurisprudence in Maloney and Canadian Western Bank. When should the paramountcy analysis consider subsequent or ancillary legislation? We say, that that is guided by the factors set out at paragraph 18 of our factum. They include whether or not there's clear language linking multiple pieces of legislation evincing a unified federal purpose. They include subject matter and timing. Is the subject matter the same as it been passed in a, <coughs> pardon me, temporally proximate manner? As well, is the government the same? Is this, uh, or the multiple pieces of legislation, uh, components of an organized uh, effort to affect a federal purpose which is legible and can be articulated when comparing it to the federal, or rather the provincial purpose? Now, I'm reaching back a long ways, but once upon a time, I was the procedural advisor to the Speaker of the Newfoundland Legislature. And one of the things that, uh, uh, ministers or, or any uh, member when bringing forward legislation was compelled to do, was called upon to do, was to include in a single bill all of the amendments which were necessary to give rise to the purpose. So one bill might amend several pieces of legislation. You weren't supposed to do it piecemeal because what you were supposed to do was to put before the House the whole package of measures to give, forward, give effect to the policy. Now, I'm not sure there's a, there's a strict rule about this, but ordinarily this is not done in a fragmentary way. Bless you. Justice Rowe, thank you for that uh, observation, and I agree that in most cases, and in many cases I would say, uh, the, a single legislative act of the federal parliament will include changes to whatever pieces of legislation it requires in order to affect the purpose of that act. However, this is a good example, and, and of course we are in a um, a slightly uh, awkward position because the, the, the record is developed as it is for an appellate court. It doesn't include all of the Hansard and other uh, legislative debates for the related legislation uh, which we have identified in our factum. So that would include Bill C-46, uh, Bill C-93, which deals with uh, the enhanced uh, access to record suspensions or pardons. But the purpose, so, and so I accept your proposition, Justice Rowe, the point here is that for whatever reason, this same government, this same parliament, within a year of passing the Cannabis Act, has passed multiple other pieces of legislation, which we say evinces the proper federal purpose that falls within a, uh, a recognized head of power for the federal government 
to use its criminal law jurisdiction to affect how Canadians have access to cannabis legally on a recreational basis, but also how the federal criminal justice system is burdened by uh, simple cannabis offenses, including uh, possession of plants for growing at home. And one of the questions that uh, was asked earlier by Justice Brown and then in a, a related way by Justice Kassirer was essentially, isn't, aren't we really talking about the federal government having invited the province uh, into, the provinces rather, into providing their own regulations uh, at the provincial level? And we agree with that. But we say that that was evidence of a federal government exercising cooperative federalism. Well, 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 whatever that means. Um, I've got a question for you. Yes, um, Isn't the necessary implication of your submission that when Parliament decides to decriminalize a certain conduct, let's say drunk driving, um, and isn't the implication that the provinces can't then regulate that conduct, in fact, prohibit that conduct by making, for example, sobriety a condition of, of holding a driver's license. Isn't that the natural upshot? Uh, I'll just answer your question, then my time is up, uh, right. uh, Justice Brown. But uh, I would say no, and the reason is this. If there has been a valid exercise of federal jurisdiction uh, that permits a certain kind of conduct for the purposes which are articulated in the Cannabis Act or in a similar piece of federal legislation, there will always be areas uh, where, or almost always, I should say, shouldn't be a, a declaratory there, there will always be areas where the provinces need to adjust or implement or, re or regulate uh, how that federal purpose lives at the provincial level. And we say that, yes, that there are going to be valid ways for that regulation to be articulated. But when the provincial approach is to completely reverse the federal approach. Right, it's like by, 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 ban by effectively banning drunk driving. Or an example would be, in this case, for example, if the province has had said, not only can you not grow cannabis No, you, you, you got away from my example. Right, but the, the, <laughs> the, the point here is that if there's an absolute ban, for example, on yeah, all Yeah, so an absolute ban on drunk driving. Yes. If, you, if you drive drunk, you can't drive. Provinces say that. Correct. Are you saying that, that that's just not possible? Well, I'm saying that that's a different regime that the provinces could regulate unless there was a, an, a valid criminal law purpose that has been articulated in the same way and with the same uh, fulsomeness that has been articulated around the cannabis Fulsome. legislation. Thank you. It's Martin has the last question for you. Thank you. Thank you. In, in your factum, you speak of the ancillary and subsequent legislation should be considered but you limit your um, um, analysis to Parliament. And I'm wondering if the same uh, um, approach, generous approach, should be applied to the provincial legislation, both to its ancillary and subsequent legislation as well. Uh, thank you, Justice Martin. Uh, I think so, but I think, I would, I would say that to, to, to do it in the manner that the paramountcy analysis uh, is, is meant to proceed, that the first thing that we do at the second stage of the paramountcy analysis is to try to understand what the federal purpose is so that we can understand whether or not there has been a frustration of that purpose by the uh, provincial legislation. And so the reason I draw that distinction is that 
as I read the cases on a federal paramountcy analysis, and particularly on that second step, it's the federal purpose which is uh, the primary inquiry, and then there is the question of whether the, the operation of the provincial uh, act frustrates that purpose. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Goldenberg. Good morning, Chief Justice. Justices, I have a condensed book, <coughs> excuse me, which should be provided to you. I'm not going to take you through it, but in it we've compiled elements of the record that speak to the legislative history of the federal law at issue here, to which we say you ought to have regard in determining what it is the Cannabis Act actually does or doesn't do. And this is responsive to the questions that were put to my friend, Maître Guérin, concerning whether Parliament did indeed impose some kind of positive entitlement to cultivate cannabis at home or whether the federal criminal law power is limited to prohibiting certain conduct. It cannot allow or permit or authorize such conduct. The proposition that I am here to advance is that a provincial cannabis restriction will be inoperative as a matter of federal paramountcy if it prohibits an activity that Parliament intended to permit or allow. The first subsidiary proposition to that is that Parliament can have such an intention in the exercise of its criminal law power Cases. You might not, you, Mr. Goldenberg, you might not know the Quebec expression, check tes claques, but w that was pretty quick work there between prohibition and rights. Uh, didn't you just say, if I heard you correctly, that Parliament can create a positive right? So I, I, we could spend a long time debating the nomenclature, Justice Kazira. What I can tell you is that if you look in the legislative record, there are numerous clear statements, including on recorded divisions of the House of Commons, in response to a proposed amendment by the Senate to the Cannabis Act, in which the House of Commons says, a majority of the House of Commons says, in enacting this legislation, that it intends to permit or allow individuals to cultivate cannabis at home, subject to provincial regulation, but not provincial prohibition. What about the wording of the law, Mr. Goldenberg? I'm, I'm it is so prohibited. Well, the second proposition about the reach of the criminal law power may be the nail in the coffin, but the first point surely is the wording of the provision, and the provision talks about, talk, talks about uh, uh, provisions talk about prohibitions, uh, and what's, what's, what won't, be, won't, won't result in criminal, they don't talk about uh, criminal uh, prosecution, they don't talk about rights. So it may be that you, loosely when you refer to ministerial statements, they might loosely and colloquially refer to the ability to cultivate, but really what we have is, is uh, the, the reach of uh, 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 what, what will be criminally prosecuted and what won't be. So you are correct, in Justice Jamal, in, in identifying the offense-creating pro prohibitions in the statute, but the Cannabis Act doesn't just include those provisions. It also includes provisions that amend, for example, Schedule II of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Parliament did not just create prohibitions here against a blank or neutral backdrop which is the case in, for example, the Rothmans, Benson, and Hedges case where Parliament imposed restrictions against a backdrop where such restrictions did not previously exist. The fact that this conduct was criminal before and the act that we're talking about here doesn't just create the end result that you are describing in the statutory text, but affected that result by repealing provisions of other statutes has to be taken to, into account in the statutory interpretation exercise. You look at the text and the context that is at issue, and you also look at the legislative history. And so in this case, notwithstanding what Section 2, well, not even notwithstanding, what Section 2 says of the Cannabis Act is what it says.
But that intention, the, t the intention of Parliament, which is stated in the recorded division of the House of Commons in response to the Senate amendment, in the statements of ministers. But the statements can't create jurisdiction. It can't create authority if the Constitution doesn't provide it. So I would focus on what the law says. Indeed. And this is where we get to the nub of the issue and back to, frankly, Justice Jamal's question about the absence of the Attorney General of Canada in this proceeding. It has never been squarely put in issue in this proceeding. The argument has not been squarely advanced by the Attorney General of Quebec that the federal law in this case is invalid. That argument has not squarely been advanced. I would suggest to you that if it had been, the Attorney General of Canada would be here. But that argument has not been made. And if you accept my proposition that interpreting the Federal Cannabis Act in light of its text, its context, and its legislative history, including the debates, including the recorded division that's in included in our condensed book, if you agree with me that the intent of this provision in the Federal Cannabis Act is to allow or permit cultivation of some amount of cannabis up to four plants at home, if that's the purpose, if that's the interpretation of the federal law, then you can only uphold the provincial restriction under the paramountcy analysis if you conclude that that federal law is invalid, if you, in, in effect, read it down. In a, per, in a proceeding in which that argument has never been squarely put in issue, in which the validity of the federal law has never been squarely challenged, and in which, as a consequence, the Attorney General of Canada is not a participant. But, Mr. Goldenberg, the, the, if the position is whether the federal legislation is valid or not is not before the court, the question is provincial law is valid and thus we move to operability and the position of your friends on the other side is there's no operational conflict and there's no conflict of purpose which for with a valid federal purpose that would undo which would undo things under paramountcy they don't need to contest the validity of the federal legislation so i, I say i'm out of time chief justice if you i can answer, answer the question, question. the the answer justice kazira in my submission is that there are two uses that can be made of the limits of the federal criminal law power in a case such as this. The first use is the one to which you're referring, and this is the use that has been made of the federal criminal law power's limits in this case to date, which is to determine what Parliament actually intended to do. The presumption, as it's stated in Maloney, that Parliament does not intend to step on the toes of the provinces and create conflicts with areas of provincial jurisdiction and with provincial laws. In other words, using the limits of the federal criminal law power to discern the intention of Parliament. But that presumption, like any meaningful presumption, is rebuttable. And I say it is rebutted in this case on the statutory interpretation exercise that the court is obliged to take part in. So if that is correct, then you move to the second potential use of the limit of the criminal law power, which, which is to determine whether the federal enactment is valid or not, whether Parliament could constitutionally give effect to its intention discerned from the text, context, and legislative history of the statute. And it's that second use of the criminal law power the limits of the criminal law power that's never been put in play on the Attorney General's side of the case. And that's why I submit that is the best inference that I submit the court can draw from the absence of the Attorney General of Canada. Thank you very much. The court will now take its morning pause, 15 minutes.
Thank you. Please take your seats. Patricia Blair. Patricia Blair, the floor is yours. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices of the Supreme Court. Good morning. The Attorney General of Quebec is clearly here today to, to argue the Sections 5 and 10 of the Cannabis Regulation Act, which prohibit the home growing uh, in Quebec, are constitutional provisions. In our opinion, the Court of Appeal rightly found under the most recent teachings of this court on jurisdictional issues that these provisions are valid and operative. So they're valid, according to the Court of Appeal, because they're part of the numerous measures that Quebec took to counter the harms of cannabis use, particularly among young people. The uh, heart of this legislation is the creation of the SDQ, uh, the SQDC, which is the Quebec Cannabis Corporation. It, it was given a monopoly to control the marketing and production and distribution of cannabis. So the consumer is directed to the SQDC if they want to get safe and licit cannabis. Your friend emphasized the absolute nature of the prohibition. Yes. So how do you explain the fact that the production of wine and beer is not prohibited? Home production of wine and beer, even though there is the SAQ, which is the Quebec Liquor Corporation. Is there not some inconsistency here? There's a prohibition across the board for home growing, but not for home produced wine and beer. Well, I think it's important to point out that alcohol and cannabis are very different substances. Cannabis is a psychotropic substance that has been criminalized for over 100 years in Canada, which was not the case for alcohol. And also, the SQDC has a very different mission from the SAQ because they have very different roles to play. The SQDC is supposed to uh, control the production and marketing of cannabis while at the same time not normalizing it and not giving it uh, a stamp of approval, if you will. So. I'm not a historian, but I think that historically there were uh, laws prohibiting the home production of wine and beer. So I don't want to get off track too much here, but I understand your question. You're right, there's no blanket prohibition on making your own wine or beer, but we think it's a very different uh, the parallel, if you will. The approach that the Quebec legislature chose was very different. Yes, they took note of the federal partial decriminalization of cannabis under its criminal law head of power, but Quebec also decided to consult a panel of experts in the summer of 2017. There were public hearings, and they decided to proceed on the cautionary or precautionary principle. 
So the decision in this case was to try to avoid the mistakes of the past when it came to fighting tobacco use. And what the Quebec Ministry of Health decided to do was to listen to the experts and proceed in a more restrictive way, in a, in a cautionary way. Uh, because cannabis was criminal for so long, we had very little information about the harmful effects of it, reliable scientific information, that is. So the Quebec legislature decided to proceed in a cautious way, in a restrictive way. And I think everyone agrees, and the Court of Appeal repeated this, that the effect of this legislation is to redirect the consumer to a safe supplier, which is the monopoly supplier. Yes, but your friend, Mr. Guérin, says this is all window dressing, and ultimately what the province did, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but bas basically this is a colorable criminal law purpose. Yes, absolutely. The main argument of the appellant from the outset has been just that, Justice Cote, that the provincial government had a hidden agenda and they wanted to reintroduce a criminal prohibition. In other words, undo what the federal government had done. Uh, we don't think that's true. And I uh, move straight to that argument. First of all, one of the appellant's arguments was, if I recall correctly, was that the timing or the uh, virtually simultaneous enactment of the provincial and federal acts was that the provincial goal uh, was clearly to backtrack or undo what the feds had done. But there was actually a whole lot of cooperation all throughout between both levels of government, and the record will show this. And I think you understood that the federal government, in exercising its criminal head of power, can criminalize or decriminalize things, but they cannot create a positive right. So given all the other aspects of Canadians' lives uh, in connection with cannabis, there had to be a high level of cooperation between the federal government and the provincial government. So the timing is not just a coincidence, and it's not an indication of bad faith. In fact, it's a beautiful illustration of cooperative federalism. Well, whether or not we agree that the federal act uh, only decriminalizes, because your colleague talked about 7C. He referred to 7C a number of times. Yes, I'd just like to finish up with the colorable issue, but I'd also like to answer your question at the same time. There's another argument that came up in the appellant's uh, submissions, and that is that this is a blanket prohibition. Well, respectfully, that's not true. Uh, the fact that there's an, uh, a blanket prohibition does not automatically fall under the criminal jurisdiction. Other blanket provisions have been upheld as long as they were within provincial jurisdiction, and I'll come back to some examples of that. But So the absolute prohibition is not uh, dispositive of the issue, nor is the timing, the simultaneous timing of the two acts. Now, as this court recently held, the parliamentary debates can certainly be useful in determining the pith and substance, but you have to be careful about that because 
It might simply be elected officials expressing their own wishes or opinions and not parliament as a whole. So that said, the fact that one minister responsible for the bill said that she was reacting, that she took note of the new federal approach and that she intended to follow suit uh, with provincial legislation, I don't think that's proof of bad faith or colorable purpose. On the contrary, they acted in lockstep. They acted together. And the provinces were given time to regulate in all areas coming under provincial jurisdiction, given that decriminalization was coming. So I don't think we can say that the provincial minister of health disagreed. Uh, I think we shouldn't read into what people did things that were intentions that were not even there. We can't impugn the provincial minister's motives. Did you have a question, Justice? Well, your friend said that it goes beyond decriminalizing, it creates a positive right. Yes, he does. Perhaps uh, I take a narrower view of the jurisdictional issues, but we, we don't believe that this was a colorable encroachment. And now we move to the paramountcy analysis and we need to see if there's an operational conflict or a frustration of purpose. The appellant is right in saying that the federal act does allow or permit the production of four. Well, my friend says that it permits up to four plants, but we say no, that's not true. It does not mention allowing uh, that. It talks about it's a it's about decriminalizing the growth of four plants, and we would say that th this doesn't come under the criminal law head. Maybe it comes under other areas of jurisdiction, but in this case. Criminal law is prohibitive in nature and can only be used to prohibit things, not to create positive rights. Well, beyond that point, and I take uh, note of what you're saying, but there's another doctrine by virtue of which, when it comes to the second branch of paramountcy analysis, when it comes to analysis of the purpose, we have to be very careful given the federal jurisdiction. What do you have to say about that? Well, it's our submission that if you look to the purpose, the overall purpose, the macro purpose, if you will, of the federal government and not just 7C, I'm not sure if that was your question exactly, but if you look at the context in which the federal legislation was enacted, the basic purpose at the outset was to decriminalize certain things because there was a very high use, uh, very high rate of cannabis use in Canada and it was clear that uh, the approach to date wasn't working. So the idea of the federal government was to decriminalize certain things to try to shunt aside organized crime and 
to unburden the system. So the idea was to decriminalize simple possession with the federal legislation. So the federal purpose was not only to reduce illicit activity, but also to protect young people from cannabis use because, and it only makes sense, if the supply of cannabis is coming from organized crime, then it's only reasonable to assume that organized crime doesn't really care about the health of the user or the consumer, if you will. So the, the federal purpose is not just to be found in 7C, and I think that the provincial uh, prohibitions on homegrown do not really run counter to the overall federal purpose. So I think it's also important to show that Sections 5 and 10, which prohibit homegrown cannabis, uh, they don't frustrate the federal purpose. When you look at Section 7 of the Federal Act, or if you look at the big picture, I think you'll see there's no evidence that Sections 5 and 10 and their prohibition on homegrown there's no evidence that they frustrate the federal purpose, whether it's in it on the whole or when you look at any of the specific purposes. There is no conflict or frustration of purpose when you look at those closely. So as I was saying, in our view, if you look at the pith and substance of Sections 5 and 10, the true purpose of those provisions, as the Court of Appeal said, you can't just look at those provisions in isolation. I think the Court of Appeal saw clearly that you have to take a holistic view. There's no point in isolating Sections 5 and 10, separating them from the rest of the Act, or disembodying, disembodying them, if you will. And the Court of Appeal, in its judgment, referred to this logic and logical and consistent link. If you look at Morgenthaler, there was no logical or consistent link between the measure taken, or the means chosen, and the goal. And there is no evidence, in this case, of an actual well-founded fear. Uh, and as the Court of Appeal said, it's not the court's role to pass judgment on the wisdom of the legislation or the choice of means. If people are not allowed to grow, to grow their own, Parliament's choice or the legislature's choice was perceived as the way of achieving the goal of the SD, SQDC, which, as I said, was to provide the consumer with high-quality, safe cannabis, which is regulated, and also to limit access to people, under underage people, to, to prevent people under 21 from having access, and to make sure that there's good uh, health labeling and so on. And the profits, I would also point out, of the SQDC go into a research fund uh, that looks into prevention of cannabis use. So when you take all of these things together, the goal is the same, which is to protect public health and safety. Uh, and as when it comes to operability, ultimately, 
the federal government and parliament had the same objective. So we don't see any frustration of purpose here. I might also like to talk about the interpretation of some of the speeches in the provincial legislature and the idea that there was disapproval expressed and that there was a fear of, of undermining moral values. In, it's our submission. It can't be said that the provincial purpose was to recriminalize home growing or, uh, or possession of cannabis because the provincial legislate, legislator didn't attach the criminal stigma Fines of $250 are not stigmatizing. They don't lead to imprisonment. So yes, there is a blanket prohibition of a previously criminal conduct, but there's not enough with a fine is not enough to include that this is recriminalizing. It's not enough to find that this is stigmatizing an activity. And we mustn't forget that the government is actually providing cannabis to consumers here. The government created a monopoly precisely to provide consumers with cannabis. So it's not about punishing cannabis use. It's about protecting the public. It's a bit like in Schneider. Perhaps uh, it's a bit of a funny comparison, but here the government is telling the people, you are free to possess cannabis and we are going to provide you with it because it will be licit, it will be quality controlled, and so on. Can you explain to me Section 22 of the Cannabis Regulation Act? This legislation was enact, enacted all at the same time, and what bothers me is a fine of up to $500,000. That wasn't, uh, it's not in force, but there's a provision that's made for fines of up to $500,000. Well, that's an interesting question because from what I understood from the ministry when explaining Section 22, they said it's still not in force because like in many other places in the Quebec Act and in the Federal Act, it's interesting to notice that they mirror one another. They refer back and forth to one another. So I think the rules governing the production of cannabis and approving an unauthorized producer, uh, that comes under the Federal Act in Section 12. So you're right, it's not in force for now. Yes, but, but you, you would agree that the fines, there's provision made for the fines to eventually be up to $500,000. That's a pretty stiff fine. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. It's a pretty hefty fine. But we're not talking about the ordinary person growing four plants at home. No, no. But you, you're encouraging us to look at the uh, act as a whole, to read it holistically. So that is a part of the act, is it not? Yes, it is. Uh, 
to close on the purpose then. It is important to repeat that the uh, Court of Appeal did not err in law or fact uh, with regard to int intrinsic and uh, extrinsic uh, evidence. And it, it concluded that the palpable and overriding purpose was uh, under 5 and 10 to protect uh, the public health and safety by directing consumers to the SQDC, which is a responsible way of providing cannabis. And that purpose is confirmed, in our opinion, uh, by its effects. That is, the effects are uh, uh, complementary to the purpose by uh, directing consumers to the SQDC. There's no scientific evidence of this, of course, but uh, I would say logically that uh, uh, if uh, Quebec citizens wish to consume cannabis, I would say that I wouldn't say it's easy, but it might be easier to go to this specialized uh, outlet and to obtain a product, a product that uh, is of guaranteed quality. So that being said, the effectiveness does not have to be uh, proven and it also leads us to reflect on the fact that for now uh, the culture of four plants the growth of four plants is currently banned because uh, that's because of the precautionary pr approach and so uh, Quebec has uh, started by being very restrictive but who knows uh, perhaps the uh, rules might be loosened might be eased in future and uh, uh, because uh, every three years there is a review of the statute to see whether social behavior in reaction to this new uh, Canadian approach to decriminalization would allow legislators to trust uh, citizens uh, and perhaps uh, there will be a little bit more leeway with regard to public health and safety. So in our opinion, uh, the purpose and the effects uh, confirm that the pith and substance of sections 5 and 10 do fall under uh, provincial jurisdiction with regard to health. We talked about the double aspect doctrine, or rather the maitre uh, guerin um, did, but uh, for us the provincial statute is valid and it can uh, coexist very effectively with uh, the federal statute which is also valid. And so the federal legislator uh, chose to uh, target and protect uh, Canadians' public health and safety by uh, decriminalizing certain activities, uh, but also to, uh, and the provincial law protects public health and safety as well. May I ask you to specify what the uh, how do you see uh, which subject uh, comes under double aspect? Well, it's protection of public uh, uh, health and safety versus uh, the harm caused by cannabis. Yes, because you know that uh, uh, health uh, uh, is not uh, uh, nailed down within the Constitution. Both levels of government can participate in this field of jurisdiction. And the subject, uh, the substance, I think... Uh, can be specified more than just saying public health. I think we can are comfortable with saying that we're talking about protecting public health, uh, health and safety, rather, against uh, the from the harm caused by cannabis. So uh, the intervention in that regard is proportional, but with means 
that are each in their respective legislative fields of jurisdiction. With regard to operability, I might just uh, point out that the burden of proof on the appellant is very high. The presumption that uh, the legislator wanted to uh, act in its field of jurisdiction, but also that it did not necessarily wish to contradict uh, the law, especially here because I was talking about uh, this cooperative exercise that took place for, from the outset, then obviously there was no intention of frustration of purpose. Uh, there are two levels of government here. In order to uh, protect the common good, as you have written in certain uh, uh, decisions, and so each uh, level of government is intervening in its own field of jurisdiction, but with uh, a, the same purpose and different means. So the burden of proof is very high, and I uh, would invite you to find this restrictively and to uh, choose a harmonious interpretation so that uh, both statutes can be applied concurrently. With regard to the uh, conflict of uh, purpose of application, then it is perfectly possible to respect uh, both the federal statute and the purple stat statute at the same time. There is no uh, frustration of purpose, no conflict, and I believe that was also admitted before the Court of Appeal. Now, the elephant in the room is the conflict of purpose. So, but I think uh, there's this false belief that Quebec is uh, banning what the federal government uh, allows. All we have to do is look at uh, case law, for example, Rothman's, and also the assisted uh, procreation reference. Uh, and so, in our opinion, those are very clear in, say, in stating that the exercise of federal jurisdiction in criminal law is usually uh, done through prohibition, not through permission or positive entitlement. So insofar as uh, the federal government did not allow, uh, or, or rather the uh, provincial law did not allow for, uh, for uh, plants, and so there's no conflict of purpose between uh, sections 5 and 10 and what the federal law says. Now, Section 7C, I'm coming to that now. You asked me the question. We have said that in the bill, there is no provision that authorizes the growth of cannabis, home growth of cannabis, and I think that's very clear. What 7C says, we have to read it very closely, is that it provides for the licit production of cannabis. But it doesn't talk about four plants. There is no specification. We're not talking, it doesn't talk about home growing and it doesn't talk about for personal or recreational purposes. Uh, providing for the licit uh, production of cannabis uh, can encompass many other things as opposed to, to what the appellant argued. So providing for the licit production of cannabis, it's uh, very interesting to go and uh, read section two then, which decriminalizes production and that's all kinds of production and so even though if we, so if we follow what uh, the appellant said which was to arguing that automatically that allowed for home growth well that is not supported by what section 2 says here in the cannabis act it doesn't say that the production of cannabis uh, of four plants for personal purposes through home growth is permitted under this statute and 7C. That's not what 7C says either. 
it says that it allows for the production of licit cannabis in order to uh, limit the production of uh, illicit activities in relation to cannabis. And therefore, that certainly does not uh, contradict this purpose because what Sections 5 and 10 say is, or what they aim to do, is direct uh, consumers to a, a quality producers, to uh, producers who have been recognized by the government, the SQDC, and uh, that does not contradict, uh, contradict the purpose of the federal legislator. In fact, it is compatible therewith. I think we also need to mention sections 8 and 12. So as you have already said, uh, we're talking about criminal prohibitions here, and it's interesting to note that uh, those are in section 1 of uh, the federal statute, which deals with the criminal prohibition. And so what do these sections do? What they do is they uh, ban uh, any type of uh, plants in a dwelling house. Now, uh, we also say that a permissive statute could be a source of conflict insofar as it uh, deals with positive entitlement or positive rights. But we argue that this exception to the fact that normally a permissive uh, law does not uh, conflict with a pro provincial uh, restrict restrictive law, we don't feel that it applies here because of the prohibitory nature of criminal law that results in the fact that there are usually prohibitions and not uh, exceptions or permissions. For example, uh, for example, in uh, Mangad, where we see that uh, perhaps uh, non-lawyers could uh, represent uh, people in court. With regard to the federal debates the, in Parliament, uh, once again, I would uh, uh, just uh, uh, just a word here. There ha were statements that were made that uh, perhaps uh, shouldn't have been made. That the federal statute allow was going to allow for uh, personal home growth of uh, for plants. Now that statement. Uh, does not comply with uh, a true valid exercise of uh, the federal jurisdiction under criminal law under 9127. And I would also argue that there were statements that were made. There, there were very lengthy debates on this topic, I might add, and I think that both cases uh, were, or both parties were quite opposed on this case. and. That is uh, where the amendment uh, came in that uh, was proposed by Mr. Fournier for Quebec, and that was debated very hotly. But we need to specify here that the intervention from Mr. Fournier was aimed at explaining the limits of uh, federal and provincial jurisdiction to conclude that there was no possible uh, conflict here and that he had made that intervention with a view to clarifying what he had said, and it was uh, to avoid a number of court challenges that may have arisen. Now, 
uh, one of the interveners uh, pointed out that uh, Quebec is not does not challenge the constitutional constitutionality of the Federal Act, and what is the consequence of that? What uh, do you have to say? Well, the same thing from that I understood uh, from your response, Justice Kazuer, is that it is clear for us uh, that we did not do to challenge the valid validity of the Federal Act, obviously. What we are saying is uh, that uh, we are talking about the pith and substance, uh, which has to do with uh, federal jurisdiction, so it's valid, and neither is there any conflict uh, of uh, purpose or application with regard to the uh, federal statute either. And uh, there was uh, a defense of uh, validity and operability. I don't think uh, that that is the role of the uh, Quebec uh, prosecutor to uh, challenge the validity of the Federal Act, but we do argue that the federal government could not uh, positively entitle uh, home growing of uh, four plants for personal purposes, and the appellant argued what he argued, what the appellant argued, if it was true, then it would be a, it, if it had been written in the Federal Act uh, that there was a permission to uh, grow, then perhaps the uh, Prosecutor General of Quebec uh, would be here, but that's not the case, and uh, therefore it's very important for me to clarify that and to respond to your question of earlier, is that uh, we did not need to challenge the validity because, uh, in our opinion, with it is not relevant to the analysis of the pith and substance of uh, 5 and 10. You said earlier it is very important. This is a sort of Cartesian exercise. What is the purpose? What is the effect? What is the pith and substance? Is, is, it, is, is it attached? And then we have to verify what the intention, the purpose was of the federal legislator in the case at bar. And I don't think it was to show uh, that, or rather, you noticed it, that uh, the person who could have told us that, that is Canada, is not present. And uh, therefore, we argue that uh, at Section 7 and in federal debates, we can understand that the final aim of the, legislator, of the federal legislator is the same as the provincial legislator, that is, to protect uh, the health and safety of uh, Canadians, and especially young people, from the harm done by cannabis, with uh, in this new decriminalization approach taken by Canada. Perhaps a final word on the fact the, that the appellant argued that sections 5 and 10 uh, frustrate the purpose of uh, reducing the burden on the uh, criminal justice system. We referred to that earlier, and I'd like to point out that uh, there was no evidence that was filed, and so for us uh, it is insufficient to, to conclude that there was a frustration of purpose. Otherwise, we would have looked to the reasoning of the Court of Appeal, that, uh, which concluded that it uh, was not conclusive, and uh, on the contrary, logically, Sections 5 and 10 actually were compatible with the federal uh, objective sent out in uh, Section 7, and if you look at them one by one, then you will be convinced uh, that uh, banning 
home growth of cannabis in order to uh, direct people to uh, purchase their cannabis at the SQDC is a way of protecting young people's health. It's uh, raising awareness of the public on uh, the possible harm of cannabis and so forth. Now, with regard to the operability of Sections 5 and 10, I would like to point out that the appellant had a very high burden of proof to demonstrate the colorability of the Provincial Act and that that burden was not met. It is a very, it's a considerable burden and it would have uh, meant that uh, his inevitable conclusion of the interpretation of the intrinsic and extra and the, of the extrinsic evidence is that uh, the legislator uh, would have wanted to reach a different conclusion. He also had the burden, it also had the burden of the existence of a conflict of uh, purpose and uh, application, and it's not met. And it was not met because uh, the appellant said that it was possible to uh, comply with both uh, statutes at the same time. And the conflict of purpose was not proven either because uh, the appellant did not uh, succeed in demonstrating a clear intent on the part of the federal legislator to specifically allow home growing of four plants for personal purposes. So, uh, he did not uh, uh, demonstrate a clear intent, but neither did he prove that sections 5 and 10 frustrated the venerable purpose of what is set out in the Federal Act. Now that being said, I would like to invite this court to follow the teachings, the principles established that were enacted uh, under uh, Lemaire logging to ensure that it uh, does not uh, in come into conflict, uh, well, then it has to be applied to other cases. If the federal and provincial legal regimes are complementary and coordinated and represent a cooperative arrangement that is, respect, uh, that is respectful in terms of prevention with regard to cannabis, there is no uh, proof of conflict and therefore, I invite you to uh, reject the appeal and to declare Sections 5 and 10 not only valid, but also operable with expenses before all authorities. Ms. Blair, uh, the Prosecutor General, General is calling for expenses before all levels, but uh, Mr. Murray Hall is a citizen who came before the courts to demand that his rights be respected. Your request for expenses seems, in my opinion, very harsh. Do you have anything to respond? I acknowledge your concern, Justice Rowe. In our opinion, indeed, there could be a potential waiver of the fees uh, if it is the court's interpretation that the challenge that is before you today uh, went uh, all the way up to you. I cannot, uh, is, do you mean a waiver? Is that what you mean? A waiver of the expenses? What do you mean exactly? I will leave that to the discretion of the court. Now, if the court concludes that uh, uh, we had to come here to clarify the situation, 
Well, in our opinion, that was uh, clear. So if you read our arguments, you will understand that in our opinion, it was very clear from the outset that uh, the federal government, uh, if, if it was, uh, for us, it, it was clear that there was no conflict. Uh, but yes, I leave to the discretion of the court uh, with regard to expenses. It remains that this is a uh, file of public interest, obviously. I agree with you, and I understand that uh, this could have uh, consequences in many spheres of society, and I hope you will take this under advisement. Thank you. We're going to suspend for 10 minutes to allow the interveners to uh, look at all this, and we'll be back in 10 Merci. Era Evans. We can't hear you for a moment. Not, not much better. I will try to speak up as much as I can. can All right, that's now, now we hear you. Excellent, thank you very much. Ontario's intervention in this case is focused on paramountcy and in keeping with this morning's focus, the scope of the criminal law power. Ontario makes two submissions. First, the impugned provisions of Quebec's Cannabis Regulation Act should not be found inoperative under the paramountcy doctrine. And second, this appeal has potential implications for a wide range of provincial legislation. There is no conflict between sections five and 10 of Quebec's Cannabis Regulation Act and the Federal Cannabis Act. Provincial laws may validly prohibit conduct that the federal parliament declines to prohibit. And in doing so, the provinces cause neither an operational conflict nor frustration of a federal purpose. The Federal Cannabis Act, as we've been discussing, is enacted pursuant to Parliament's criminal law power. Understanding the scope and the nature of that power, we say, is crucial to this appeal. I, 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 would, I would remind you that, of course, as intervener, you cannot, um, you cannot argue on the merit of the case, of this case. You can argue about the principles of law, as you know. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. That's absolutely, that is my intention to argue about the principles. I'll continue by saying that this court has repeatedly confirmed that the criminal law power is a prohibitory power. And we would say it's equally important for this appeal to understand what the criminal law power is not. 
it is not a power to create freestanding rights or positive entitlements. This court's 2005 Rothman's decision articula articulates these principles. I'm going to read from it very briefly. At paragraph 19, quote, as the criminal law power is essentially prohibitory in character, provisions enacted pursuant to it do not ordinarily create freestanding rights that limit the ability of provinces to legislate in this area more strictly than parliament, unquote. This description of the criminal law power from Rothman's is consistent with prior and subsequent jurisprudence from this court. Though Rothman's dealt with the promotion of tobacco products, it is still analogous to the constitutional issues here. In fact, it is Ontario's submission um, that Rothman's provides an answer to the constitutional issues here. In Rothman's, the federal act prohibited some, but not all conduct promoting tobacco products by carving out some limited um, circumstances in which the promotion of those products was not prohibited. Saskatchewan's legislation, however, it went further and it prohibited any advertising, display or promotion of tobacco products in any premises that could be entered by someone under 18. This court found that the federal legislation concerning the promotion of tobacco products was enacted under the criminal law power. And as a result, the legislation had a limited reach in that it could validly prohibit conduct, but it could not grant a right to engage in it. Furthermore, this court in Rothman's rejected the argument that by enacting the Federal Tobacco Act, Parliament had occupied the field and intended for only its legislation to apply in that area. This court said that the express language that would demonstrate such an intention did not appear in the Federal Act, and that such a finding would be contrary to this court's long-standing and restrained approach in relation to paramountcy questions. With respect to this case, Ontario says that the same analysis applies. Because criminal law is prohibitory in nature, Parliament's choice in the Cannabis Act not to prohibit certain conduct, here the cultivation of up to four plants, cannot be said to create a positive entitlement to engage in that conduct that wasn't prohibited. As in Rothman's, the argument that Parliament has occupied the field of cannabis regulation ought to be rejected. Even if Parliament could occupy the field using its criminal law power, which is denied, the Cannabis Act does not contain the express statutory language to demonstrate such an intention. On the contrary, and as was the case in Spraytech, and as I would note was pointed out by, uh, I believe, Justices Brown and Cote with respect to the definition of illicit cannabis in the Federal Act, the Cannabis Act actually does the exact opposite. It expressly contemplates concurrent provincial regulation. Well, not concurrent. I not concurrent. It's, it's <clears throat> they're regulating different aspects of the same matter. Certainly, Justice Brown. My submissions are premised on the the premise that there is a double aspect, and so if I misspoke there, I apologize. But what what is being what is um, happening concurrent is that the provinces jurisdiction is a different thing. Absolutely, the provinces are regulating from the perspective of their provincial competencies, but this is recognized in the federal act. Is my point. So in particular, um, this court has noted that the essentially prohibitory character of the criminal law has important implications for the paramountcy analysis. 
And applying those principles in this case, there is no inconsistency between the provincial and federal laws and paramountcy is thus not engaged. The impugned provisions in relation to home cultivation of cannabis cannot be said to frustrate the purpose of the more permissive federal regime because the federal act cannot and therefore in our submission does not establish a right to grow up to four cannabis plants. Said somewhat differently, under its criminal law power, parliament can choose to prohibit certain conduct and to not prohibit other conduct. Here, the choice that was made was to not prohibit growing four plants or less. But having made that choice, parliament cannot prevent the provinces from further regulating the home cultivation of cannabis, again, from the perspective of their provincial areas of competency, uh, but this includes through a prohibition. As fortune would have it, there are only two areas of concurrent jurisdiction under the uh, division of powers. One of them is agriculture. Thank you for that observation, Justice Rowe. Uh, I would say that um, the approach and the principles that I'm discussing here, I want to note they've been confirmed, confirmed excuse me, by this court on multiple occasions. So I'll return again to Rothman's as an example. Saskatchewan's legislation in that case was unanimously upheld. The court reasoned there that because the federal legislation enacted pursuant to the criminal law power did not create an entitlement to promote tobacco products, more restrictive provincial legislation did not conflict with or frustrate the purpose of the federal act. And a final point before I move on from um, paramountcy, I'll note that uh, the fact that cannabis was recently decriminalized does not change the paramountcy analysis. Uh, several of the interveners seem to make reference to the recent change in the legal status of cannabis, and it's our respectful submission that this is a red herring. There is no principled basis to distinguish the regulation of cannabis from the numerous other subject matters which may be regulated in both their provincial and federal aspects. So to conclude on the issue of paramountcy, Ontario submits that provincial laws may validly prohibit conduct that the federal parliament has declined to prohibit. Our second submission is that there are in fact numerous provincial laws which prohibit conduct that is left unprohibited by the federal criminal law over the same subject matter. And therefore allowing this appeal could call into question the validity of a significant body of provincial jurisdiction. The industry coalition notes that only Quebec and Manitoba expressly prohibit cultivation in circumstances not prohibited under the Cannabis Act. This, they say, demonstrates that finding the impugned provisions inoperable, inoperative, excuse me, would not disrupt cannabis regulation in the vast majority of the country, and that because the regulation of cannabis is somehow unique, the application of paramountcy in these circumstances would not impact provincial legislative authority in other contexts. And Ontario respectfully disagrees with this submission. As I stated, there's no principal reason to distinguish this case in others from others in which this court has upheld more restrictive provincial legislation solely because this case is about cannabis. It is the simple reality that provincial laws frequently prohibit conduct that is not subject to a criminal pro prohibition. And driving offenses are the ubiquitous example of this. Um, Justice Brown used a hypothetical of a driving example earlier. The same dynamic 
I want to note, exists in Ontario's legislation uh, in areas such as liquor licensing and securities regulation. The Attorney General of British Columbia notes that in that province, laws in relation to, yes, driving, but also tobacco and vaping products and trespass are structured in the same way where there are additional prohibitions. Thus, if the appellant and the interveners supporting him are correct, that the province cannot prohibit conduct left unprohibited by federal criminal law, then a significant body of provincial jurisdiction, including in well-established areas of provincial competency, could be rendered inoperative. Thank you very much. Thank you. Catherine Hart. Chief Justice, Justices, the Attorney General of Manitoba intervenes in support of the arguments made by the respondent and wishes to emphasize three points. First, Manitoba has enacted a similar regulatory regime to Quebec that prohibits the residential cultivation of cannabis. Under this regime, like in Quebec, consumers can legally obtain non-medical cannabis only from regulated stores. Manitoba's decision to make non-medical cannabis available only through retail stores advances similar public health and safety objectives as the Quebec regime. It prevents young persons from accessing cannabis, it ensures quality control, and it promotes responsible consumption. This ban on home cultivation is intended to preserve the effectiveness of this regime. It acts to remove access to an unregulated source of cannabis and directs consumers to regulated retail environments where the cannabis must be sold from federally licensed producers and where point of sale information is available. Manitoba submits that the purpose of this prohibition on home cultivation is clearly not to punish personal possession or consumption of cannabis as immoral or harmful. Rather, the ban supports a provincial regime that provides adult consumers with regulated access to cannabis. The other two points that I wish to make today relate to frustration of purpose. First, the jurisprudence is clear that unless the Cannabis Act provides for a positive entitlement to home cultivation, the prohibition on home cultivation will not frustrate a federal purpose. As the Attorney General of Quebec has pointed out, where federal legislation merely permits an activity or course of conduct and provincial legislation imposes a more restrictive standard, this does not amount to frustration of purpose. And I, uh, we've had many submissions today about how the cr criminal law power is essentially prohibitory in nature and as such does not ordinarily create positive rights and the, the implications that this has for paramountcy. So I will, I will leave it at that. Um, my, Scott, one my, can reach that conclusion. Would you agree that one can reach that conclusion simply on the interpretation of the law without uh, getting into a debate about what criminal law, uh, how far criminal law can go or how far it can't go? One can simply interpret the law and uh, decide whether it confers a right or not. Yes, Justice Jamal, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. In fact, that, that um, ties me to my, my last point. I think you can look at the, the Cannabis Act itself and see that it does not confer a positive entitle, uh, entitlement to home cultivation, and that provides you an answer to frustration of purpose. Um, because when we look at the text of the, the Federal Cannabis Act, we see that there is nothing there that invinces an intention to positively allow home cultivation. Um, as this court noted in Cahill, extrinsic evidence is not more important than the legislative text. 
statements made during debates cannot override the specific text of an enactment. And, and so where it's very clear that the criminal prohibition does not get us to that positive right or entitlement. Um, and I would also say that, in fact, if you read the prohibition that way, it leads you to these uh, incongruities in the act with with other similarly worded provisions. So for example, the prohibition on young persons possessing five or less grams of cannabis, which is that 8.1c of the act, no one disputes that this prohibition does not confer a positive right on young persons to possess less than five grams of cannabis and that provinces can impose a complete prohibition on possession of cannabis and consumption of cannabis by youth. Um, but the appellant is saying that these two provisions, although they're very similarly phrased and that they set out a criminal standard, um, he, the appellant's arguing that this prohibition should be read in, in a completely different way um, as positively authorizing possession of four plants or less. And um, my last point just relates to another um, sort of interpretive issue with relation to the argument that was raised uh, about how the provinces can restrict home cultivation to one plant, but they can't ban it entirely. And that is also found nowhere in the text of the Cannabis Act. Um, according to the appellant's theory, Parliament positively allows what it does not prohibit, namely the cultivation of four plants or less. But if this is true, how can the Act authorize only one plant rather than four? Um, and so this argument results in significant uncertainty for the provinces regarding what restrictions can be imposed. Can we impose a single plant or do we have to impose four plants based on, on the text of the act? Um, so to conclude, Manitoba and Quebec chose to prohibit home cultivation uh, with the intention of making cannabis available only through regulated stores. The, the criminal standards in the Cannabis Act permit the provinces to have the flexibility to impose more restrictive standards tailored to local conditions. There is nothing in the text of the Cannabis Act that would support an intention to positively authorize home cultivation. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Jonathan Penner. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, the Attorney General's uh, British Columbia's submissions this morning will focus on the uh, question of paramountcy. Uh, the British Columbia legislature, as with legislatures in other provinces, has enacted an extensive regulatory regime in response to Parliament's enactment of the Cannabis Act. That regulatory regime is not only compatible with the Cannabis Act, it is anticipated and invited by the express terms of the Cannabis Act itself. What's an issue on this appeal is one discrete aspect of Quebec's legislative regime. In my submission, focusing on that discrete aspect ignores the implications of the appellant's argument for all of the other components, not only of that regime, but the cannabis regulatory regimes in all provinces. Further in my submission, that focus ignores the implications of his argument for a host of other provincial regulatory regimes that overlap or interact with federal criminal law. Uh, Parliament's criminal law jurisdiction under section 9127 has the potential to overtake large swaths of provincial jurisdiction unless it is tightly limited. When it enacts criminal law, 
Parliament is free to exempt behavior from criminal sanctions. But beyond that, all it can do is what it has effectively done here, invite the provinces to cooperate and to coordinate their responses to the federal legislation, but in line with their local priorities as the legislatures see them. As Justice Brown noted earlier, Parliament's criminal law jurisdiction does not and cannot expand based on what members of Parliament or others in the federal government may from time to time articulate as Parliament's intention. Nor can those kinds of comments convert otherwise valid provincial legislation into unconstitutional encroachment on federal criminal law jurisdiction. In my submission, there has been no principled basis identified that would distinguish the regulation of cannabis from any of the other areas in which provincial regulation coexists with federal criminal law. And further in my submission, nor has any principled basis been identified to distinguish the home growing of cannabis from the many other ways in which provinces have regulated cannabis more strictly than Parliament has done in the Cannabis Act. Uh, in my submission, uh, I would ask this court to confirm emphatically that Parliament cannot authorize activities relying on its substantive criminal law power, but can only prohibit them. And subject to any questions from the court, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Mr. Thompson Irvine. Thank you, Chief Justice, and good morning to the court. Um, I, I'm not planning on taking my full 10 minutes because it seems to me that most of the points have already been made by my friends uh, for the Attorneys General. Uh, you'll have seen from our brief that we did uh, spend a fair bit of time on the validity of the provincial legislation. The reason we did that is because it's our understanding, which was confirmed today, that uh, the appellant is challenging the legislation. This is, is not simply a paramountcy case. I just want to say that listening to my friends with all due respect, it's almost as if they take the position that there is some residual federal jurisdiction over cannabis regulation because of the lengthy um, period of criminalization and that, that that cannot be ignored. And we take a completely different point of view from our perspective as a province. We say that the up until the decriminalization by a decision by parliament, Provinces could regulate cannabis, but there was no point because the extensive criminalization provisions meant that there was no activity that it was open to provincial jurisdiction to regulate. However, once the federal parliament chose to decriminalize, it opened up uh, areas for provincial jurisdiction under well-established heads of power, notably 9216, our health jurisdiction, and uh, 9213, property and civil rights, regulation of commerce. And I also want to emphasize, and I think we did in our brief, but 9215 is the province's power to create prohibitions and, offense, uh, and offenses with fines. So the mere fact that the province has created a prohibition doesn't make it criminal. The fact that there are fines doesn't make it criminal. If the province did those in isolation, it might well be criminal, but it hasn't. The Quebec, for the reasons explained very eloquently by my uh, colleague uh, for Quebec, has uh, chose to adopt a pro, uh, policy, a standard, where there would be a provincial monopoly on sales. 
that's a choice that the province can make. And if it, and if it wants to impose a prohibition as part of that monopoly, that's well within its established authority. So we really think that the learned trial judge erred substantively on focusing so heavily on the prohibition. And with all due respect, we submit that the appellant's position does not properly take into account the fact that once something is under provincial jurisdiction, provinces can impose fines, provinces can impose prohibitions, provinces can create monopolies. We've, uh, you'll have seen from our brief that we've relied heavily, <coughs> have relied heavily on the uh, example of alcohol regulation because that is such a well-established uh, area and it is very similar. Now, uh, the question was asked, why is, it, and why is um, Quebec taking a more strict approach to, to cannabis and, and to uh, alcohol? Well, first off, that's a policy decision. Once it's accepted that there is a provincial jurisdiction, it's a policy decision for the province to make as to exactly what approach to take. But again, my friend from Quebec gave a very strong answer. She explained that this is uncharted territories. We don't have a lot of information about the effect of uh, cannabis. Therefore, it makes sense to take a restricted approach to begin, and we'll see what happens as we go along. And that is very similar to how prohibition happened in Saskatchewan, liquor prohibition. Um, and uh, the history of prohibition in Saskatchewan is very similar to that. So, uh, which is one of the reasons we decided to use that as our example. So the fact that the province has chosen to create a provincial monopoly with a prohibition on anybody else, that's within its jurisdiction and it is not a criminal law matter. And in response to uh, the appellant's submission, well, it doesn't allow for more than 30%, that's exactly the kind of health regulation that a province is allowed to make, just as the provinces are allowed to say if they're going to put a limit on the uh, rate of uh, the proportion of alcohol in a liquor that is being sold in the province. That's the kind of regulatory power that the province has. And saying that for health reasons, with this substance that we don't have a lot of scientific evidence about, we're going to say, put a 30% uh, limitation on it. That doesn't mean that you're frustrating the purpose of the federal statute. That means that you're exercising your provincial jurisdiction. So, uh, we say uh, very clearly that this statute is clearly within provincial jurisdiction and does not intrude on the federal uh, criminal law jurisdiction. The fact of a prohibition and uh, fines does not make it uh, fed or, uh, a criminal matter. Turning uh, to the frustration of the federal purpose, uh, I, would, I would like to address that. My friends have quoted the Rothman's case. Council, uh, the court may have noticed I'm familiar with it. But we have cited in paragraph 52 of our brief, uh, paragraphs 18 and 19 of Rothman's. And that is the strongest possible statement that the federal criminal law power cannot be used to create freestanding rights. So when, when the parliament has passed a prohibition, that doesn't mean that something that isn't caught by the prohibition you now have a right to do. And I fully agree with Justice Jamal's uh, comment. Well, can't that the pro uh, paramountcy issue be decided solely on the basis of statutory interpretation? We say yes, because if you look at sections 8 and 12 of the Cannabis Act, it's a prohibition on having more than four plants. That's it. It doesn't say, and you have a right to create uh, keep plants less than that. So just as a matter of statutory interpretation, the Cannabis Act does not create any sort of a right. It just says, if you have more than four plants, you're committing a criminal offense. 
And we've, that is significant for the paramountcy analysis because the very first stage of the paramountcy analysis is to give an interpretation to the criminal code provision that is consistent, uh, avoids a conflict if at all possible. And we say that you just look at sections uh, 8 and 12, the prohibitions in there, that's all they are, prohibitions. They don't create any freestanding right. They don't suggest any freestanding right. And therefore, there isn't a paramountcy issue here even and just starting from the perspective of statutory interpretation. If you do get into the paramountcy argument, we think there's not an operational conflict. And if you do get into the paramountcy argument on a policy basis, then we would say that parliament and parliamentarians may have very broad policy goals when they're passing a statute. But that doesn't mean that's the purpose of an impugned provision of the federal statute when it comes up in a paramountcy analysis. The broad policy goals, Parliament may say that if we do this, we hope it will have these policy effects. That doesn't mean that that turns into the purpose of the particular provision of the statute. And here, as I said, our view is that 8 and 12, the purpose of those provisions is to create a prohibition and nothing more. So, and as part of that, it's not open to Parliament to try to immunize a uh, an area of regulation from provincial jurisdiction without passing a statute itself that tries to do it. And then it might be subject to a, a constitutional challenge, again, as my friend from, BC, uh, from uh, Quebec very eloquently explained. But we don't think there is anything like that in this case. Parliament has not tried to immunize a substance from provincial regulation. Rather, it has said, we are uh, restricting what we're doing, and that in turn gives the provinces more scope to act because Parliament is recognizing that provincial regulation may be a better way to approach it. We would comment that um, our, our law isn't as strict as Quebec's, but we do have the difference in age, so the, there is a different interpretation, or uh, somebody who is 18 can't have um, four plants or less, in, uh, regardless of the provision. So it's not the case that this only affects Ontario and Quebec, or Quebec and uh, Manitoba. It affects Saskatchewan as well, the analysis of this case. Our final point is, as we discussed in, uh, in our factum, the Attorney General for Canada has not intervened. When arguments are being made at this level, in this court, that a federal statute is being frustrated, you would think that that might attract the attention of the federal Attorney General. The, the Attorney General the, of Canada is a politician. Politicians send out their servants when it is convenient to them. That's correct, uh, Justice Rowe. I don't disagree, but we have point. We have cited the provision of the Department of Justice Act. The, the Minister of Justice, Attorney General, has a statutory duty with respect to the enforcement of provincial laws or federal laws. So I think it's not binding on this court, but we uh, we adopt these uh, arguments uh, made by Chief, former Chief Justice Dixon in the two cases I've cited to you, where it is a factor that we submit this court can take into account. So, if there are no questions, those are my arguments. Thank you very much. I'd like to, one, one final point, Chief Justice, if I may, I would just say it has been an honor to be the uh, first King's Council to address this court in over 70 years. And I believe my uh, colleague, uh, Mr. DL, on the other side of the file shares that view. Thank you very much. Thank you. David Canal.
Thank you. The other AGs uh, have already dealt extensively with issues of pith and substance, paramountcy, vires, um, the application of Rothmans in this case, and the, the point that the AG, the federal AG, is, is not intervening in these proceedings. Uh, as a result, my submissions today are going to be very brief and, and perhaps more high level. Alberta is intervening in this case in support of a robust construal of provincial legislative jurisdiction and as stated in our factum in support of the proposition that the federal criminal law power cannot be construed in a manner that enables the creation of intractable issues at the local level. In this case, we submit that it cannot be correct that federal permissiveness with respect to personal cultivation of cannabis creates substantive rights that preclude provincial regulation for valid provincial purposes. If decriminalization of cannabis leads to any local issues that fall within provincial legislative competence, provinces must have the ability to legislate in order to address those issues. While the decriminalization of cannabis is an important social and political issue, we submit that this appeal, this appeal presents narrow constitutional issues that are not particularly complex or unique when they're distilled down to their essence. What is perhaps unique is that we have a non-federal appellant and supporting interveners arguing for an expansion of the criminal law power in a manner that not only is not only contrary to principles of federalism, but which opens the door to federal overreach under the auspices of the federal criminal law power. This is perhaps an unintended consequence of the positions they are taking on the narrow issues before the court today. The issues before the court in these proceedings have previously been decided in the body of case law that's been presented by the respondents and the supporting intervening AGs. As already argued by my colleagues, the principles governing this case were developed within the context of tobacco, alcohol, impaired driving, firearms, and gambling litigation. Therefore, given the current state of the law, the decriminalization of cannabis does not raise novel issues, and it does not require this court to deviate from established principles. Alberta's position in these proceedings is very simple but I hope it's not simplistic. Cannabis is a subject matter having both federal and provincial aspects. The criminal law is prohibitory only and does not create substantive rights. Therefore, federal permission to cultivate cannabis for personal use can be prohibited for valid provincial purposes, and this does not engage paramountcy. It does not engage paramountcy because, as stated by this court in Maloney, Dual compliance is always possible, and provincial prohibitions can only frustrate federal purpose where legislation grants positive entitlements. And we submit more broadly that paramountcy is never engaged in a case where a province prohibits what is merely per permitted under the federal criminal law power because the criminal law is prohibitory only. In our submission, the only issue for this court to determine in these proceedings is whether the respondent has demonstrated a valid provincial purpose. We say they have, 
and that the Court of Appeal correctly assess the pith and substance of the impugned legislation. And this ends the matter without engaging doctrines of paramountcy or ancillary powers. But, but is, no. is it not, as a matter of logical necessity and sound methodology, the case that as soon as you say you have the double aspect, then you have to turn your mind to whether paramountcy uh, operates? I mean, it, you may say it, it does not. But I mean, as soon as you've got double aspect, the, the issue of paramountcy arises and has to be dealt with, it seems to me. Well, I, I agree with you, sir, for the, uh, on the point of, for, for perhaps analytical completeness. However, the Court of Appeal decision uh, ends on the point that because the criminal law power is um, prohibitory only, uh, this suggests that a provincial legislation Valid provincial legislation will not trigger paramountcy when it come, comes up against a, a permissive federal criminal uh, criminal law. Mr. Kamal, you, you um, in your remarks just a few moments ago, characterized the uh, subject of the law uh, that, that is the basis for the double aspect at a somewhat higher level of generality than one of your one of the earlier speakers. You spoke about the regulation of cannabis. The earlier speaker spoke about the uh, regulation of the health and safety aspects of cannabis. What is the appropriate level of generality in terms of uh, addressing the appropriate uh, double aspect here? Well, cannabis, the regulation of cannabis is is for the purposes of public health and safety and um, the suppression of crime. So uh, perhaps uh, I spoke out of turn or, or uh, the comments I've made before were, were uh, loosely made then. Uh, just returning to the point uh, of um, the necessity for the paramountcy analysis, um, uh, it, we submit that it was not necessary for the Court of Appeal or, or this court to engage in the paramountcy analysis because the analysis can end when a valid provincial purpose is found. Again, this is because a valid provincial law can always prohibit that which is merely permitted under the federal criminal law without triggering paramountcy. Um, that principle comes from Maloney. But isn't it true, Mr. Kamal, that, that um, for the purposes, as you said, in answer to Justice Rowe of methodological completeness, to explain the point that a permissive uh, uh, argument under the guise of 9127 doesn't trigger paramountcy, you can show that there's no operational conflict and you can show that there's no conflict of purpose. In other words, rather than simply saying as an abstract and unexplained point, well, it's not triggered, um, you can explain why it's not triggered. Yes, sir, I can agree with, I can agree with your characterization there. And um, uh, I believe the fundamental principle uh, it explains the analysis in, in that way, uh, in that if the province, if provinces can uh, validly prohibit what is per merely permitted under federal law, that would be the governing principle, but this obviously does not preclude the court from uh, conducting the paramountcy analysis just to ensure um, that the principle has been um, 
properly applied. Um, with respect to the issue of virus, um, the, the, the appellants and supporting interveners put a lot of emphasis uh, upon the similarity of uh, federal and provincial legislative provisions um, while simultaneously uh, disregarding the extent of pro provincial jurisdiction to deal with local issues, um, as stated by this court in, in the Godwin case, uh, the jurisprudence makes clear that a provincial statute will not invade the federal power over criminal law merely because its purpose is to target conduct that is also captured by the criminal code. Um, it is trite law. The provinces have jurisdiction under sections 92, 13, 15, and 16 of the Constitution Act to address issues of public health and safety and the suppression of crime. Is, is well, why, why, why list them all? What, is 9213 not sufficient? It, it would be sufficient, sir. I mean, why, just... why would you water it down by depending on, on, on other provincial heads of power? D just as a demonstration, sir, of, of the, uh, the breadth of this, and of course 9213 has, has historically been um, given an extremely broad interpretation by this court. Um, the, we submit that contrary to some of the submissions made by the appellants and their supporting interveners today, that consideration of that this, this court has um, upheld legislation uh, on the basis that moral considerations um, enter into the decision process at the local level, um, it's, it is hard to see how the regulation in cannabis would not involve consideration of moral issues given that legislators, uh, legislatures represent the views of the citizenry. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sorry, your time you. is up. Thank you, sir. Robert Cunningham. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. <clears throat> the Canadian Cancer Society supports the Quebec legislative provisions as being fully constitutionally valid and operative. The purpose of both the federal and provincial cannabis legislation is health. There are many health effects from cannabis. As the appellant mentioned, the package warnings contain many details of this required by Health Canada regulations. I have a series of submissions. The first is that for there to, on paramountcy and frustration with legislative purpose, it's a very high bar. As this court has recognized, because of cooperative federalism, paramountcy should be applied with restraint. Federalism allows provinces to take different approaches, to experiment, to build on federal legislation, and to provide examples for others to follow, and we've seen that in public health. Second, as this court has recognized, if there are alternative constructions to federal legislation, the construction allowing continued validity of provincial legislation should be adopted. Third, and we've heard this, but there's implications for many other types of laws. Provinces have public health laws in tobacco, alcohol, many other areas that if the appellant's arguments were accepted, uh, there'd be very significant implications. Even for cannabis, what about the minimum age that 11 provinces and territories have of 19, higher than 18, or Quebec age 21? Or going further in terms of provincial advertising restrictions for cannabis, or maximum THC level? There'd be questions. 
course, tobacco, given the nature of the product, provides a very good parallel for cannabis in terms of provincial regulation. We've seen this court recognize many times that there's jurisdiction both federally and provincially for tobacco legislation. Many, many provincial laws are more restrictive than federal legislation for tobacco. Some going back more than 100 years in terms of provincial sales to minors ages being higher than federally. Yet courts consistently for tobacco legislation have rejected paramountcy arguments when they've arisen in Rothmans, but appellate courts as well uh, across the country. Fifth, not only is there no frustration of a legislative purpose, but the Quebec ban on home growing actually advances at least five of the stated purposes in Section 7 of the Federal Cannabis Act. For example, youth access. And the Canadian Medical Association, which before Parliament opposed home growing, cited this because if it's in the home, it's more accessible to youth. Home growing cannabis is untaxed, therefore less expensive. And then in that uh, manner, makes cannabis more accessible because it's less expensive. G, uh, 7G, cannabis at home has no package warnings. There's no package. Therefore, that affects the objective of increasing the public awareness of the health risks. One of the objectives, and we've heard about this, is with respect to illicit trade. Before Parliament, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police was against home growing. They said it was going to increase illicit activities. People who grow at home can easily supply to somebody who's not in the home. Um, so, uh, and, and keep in mind that um, this was hotly debated uh, before Parliament. There were different views, um, but it's legitimate for a province to determine that home growing increases illicit trade. The other objectives that are advanced are with respect to ensuring that there is a quality controlled supply. Home growing cannabis is not subject to THC limits and also protecting young persons and others from inducements. When you have cannabis at home, it's a de facto promotion, it's right there. Normally we do not allow youth to be in cannabis stores or to be cannabis to be visible from outside the store. So that's kind of a counter principle when you can have it right in your backyard or inside your home. Separate to any questions you have, those are my submissions. Alors, réplique. Reply. Before going further, uh, Mr. Guérin, I would like to point something out. There seems to be a misunderstanding with regard to these interventions and I'm saying this for future court hearings, the interveners have no business referring to the merits of the case. The counsel for the parties may, but not the interveners. The interveners must bring a different perspective to the court without referring to the merits of uh, the case. And apparently there are a number of uh, uh, people who uh, are not clear as to what interveners are supposed to do. So please look at the criteria in future. Reply, Mr. Guérin, please go ahead. Very quickly, I'm going to pig piggyback on uh, the, uh, uh, on what Mr. Cunningham said. 
He talked about home growing uh, with regard to the criminal market, and I have a question that uh, I don't uh, that I hadn't uh, thought about before, and I'm going to bring it here. The federal act uh, allows people to ex exchange uh, 30 grams of cannabis among them from an illicit source. So in Quebec, for example. Uh, you can grow cannabis at home, but if I exchange this maximum of 30 grams of cannabis with another adult in Quebec, as a grower who gives that cannabis to someone else, is this illicit in the eyes of the federal law, or is it illicit because I grew it at home and I had fewer than four plants? I'm submitting this question to you because I find it important. On the other hand, the person who receives the 30 grams of the, uh, of the cannabis, are, is that considered illegal or illicit in the, federal, in, the fed, in the eyes of the federal act? I would say no, but I submit this to you. I would also urge you to uh, take all the sections of the law that we had before legalization and compare them with the situation after legalization. And I'm talking about these federal and Quebec statutes. Just doing this exercise will uh, shed light on the type of wording for uh, provincial versus federal. In another vein, uh, uh, we're, we talk about cooperative federalism that exists and uh, that uh, was put in place uh, with the adoption of the Federal Act. When I hear the position of the interveners and the uh, prosecutor, it's as if there's a type of stigmatization with regard to the federal government. And I think that uh, cooperative federalism has to come from both sides. and. I think within the intentions of the different parliaments, I think that there may be a clash of ideas with regard to cooperative federalism. I'd like to go back to the point uh, brought up by Justice Kazer with, in, with regard to penalties against cannabis that may be considered very high or stigmatizing. If you look at 23, Article Section 23, there are penalties that are up to $500,000 for the transportation of cannabis, and I believe that's important to point out. And I would also argue that the uh, double aspect uh, doctrine uh, has to work both ways without frustrating the purpose of Parliament. And uh, our, uh, that is what I submit to you very humbly. And a very last point, I would like to believe that uh, this is uh, widely known legally, is that the purpose of the SQDC is not to make profits, but rather a, to be a nonprofit corporate corporation. But on September 12th, it was announced that uh, uh, the SQDC uh, has made about $20 million, which is going straight into the government of Quebec's coffers. And uh, so the the, its purpose remains extremely commercial. Thank you. Is it possible that your colleague referred to the provision of the Act that stipulates that the revenues are reinvested? Yes, so it's not really a cash cow for anyone. Yes, but this remains a, uh, a commercial aspect with regard to the SQDC. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Guerin. So this is the end of the hearing of, on this case. And it is the end of our hearings here in Quebec City. The court will be taking this case under advisement and will hand down its uh, ruling as soon as possible. 
and I would like to thank all the council for their arguments that they have presented today. The court is now adjourned to Tuesday, October 4th at 9.30 a.m. Thank you.